I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Rage Cage Season, Part 1. Welcome to The Rock. His name is John Mason, British national incarcerated on Alcatraz in 1962, escaped in 63. There's no identity in the United States or Great Britain. He does not exist. Secrets have a way of coming back to haunt you. There's a hostage situation on Alcatraz. The one you train to defend you becomes your greatest threat. A battery of VX gas rockets is presently deployed to deliver a highly lethal strike on the population of the San Francisco Bay Area. And the one you abandon becomes your only hope. You go talk to him. Me? Yeah. Hiya. I'm an agent with the uh, FBI. I'm Stanley Goodsby. But of course you are. At least he got his name right. Now, all that stands between a city and a disaster... The power of this chemical is way beyond anything you can imagine. That's where you're coming with us. ...is a man who's never seen combat. You're a chemical freak. <laughs> I'm a chemical super freak, actually. And another who's been out of action for 30 years. Show us on the blueprints. I can't. My blueprint was in my head. Fortunately, something you never forget. But don't worry, it'll all come back to me. From Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, the producers of Top Gun and Crimson Tide, and Michael Bay, the director of Bad Boys. Welcome to The Rock. We got visitors. Sean Connery. I'm sure you're ready for this. Do my best. Your best? Yeah. Nicholas Cage. Listen, I'm just a biochemist. I drive a Volvo. Beige one. So what do you say you cut me some friggin' slack? Ed Harris. Fire. This summer. Get ready to rock. This is the first of a trilogy of shows in our Rage Cage season, celebrating the span of time between June 1996 and June 1997, 12 months when Nicolas Cage was a big-time Hollywood action hero. Next week we have Con Air, followed by Face Off. And let me tell you, folks, whenever I say, how about we do Face Off, everyone goes, oh my god, Face Off! I had no idea how much people love Face Off. Of these three, that's apparently the one to wait for. And with us for the first outing, we have longtime friends of the show, Brendan Agnew of Synapse. How you doing? Caro Nagisa. Are you sure you're ready for this? And Debbie Morse. Hello! Both of Sequentially Yours. Now this one, I'm going to state for the record, is not only Michael Bay's best film, but likely to remain so. And one of the angles we can take tonight is working out why that is in comparison with, say, Bad Boys 2, Transformers, Transformers 2, Transformers 3, Transformers 4, Transformers 5. The first Bad Boys, which is also good. His most recent Ambulance, which a lot of people tell me is good. Now I'll believe it when I see it. Armageddon, Pearl Harbor, The Island, 13 Hours, 6 Underground, and Pain and Gain. It's also a special film because it was Sean Connery's last excellent performance. In effect, it's his retirement victory lap, even though he forgot to say no to Entrapment, Finding Forrester, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Sir Billy, and The Avengers. No, not that one. 
and we have been saving this particular movie for After the Man Died, which he did last year at the age of 90. Now, we've already hauled him across the coals for his lady-slapping ways in our classic episode on Zardoz, which you folks should go and listen to. It is an obscure-ass movie, and we have some fun with it. The woman in a dress comes out, and then Paul McCartney, aged, pulls back the veil, and it's Sean Connery looking grumpy in a bridal gown. And this guy goes, ah, what a pretty bride. I shall take her. And Connery's got this look on his face like, we discussed this, and I said no. I said no to the dress. You said, just try it on once, Sean. I go into the changing rooms. I come back wearing it. You've got the fucking cameras out. (laughs) And then in the next scene, the dress is gone and they never speak of it again. But let's focus this time on Sean Connery's screen presence and what he brought to the table that elevates this good action movie to great status. The premise of this film is simple enough. A decorated general named Hummel, played by Ed Harris, takes the tourist attraction island prison of Alcatraz hostage and points a bunch of rockets armed with VX poison gas at San Francisco. Editor's note and content warning. We recorded this show last year in 2021 prior to the war. We're going to be talking about bombs and hostages quite a lot. He attempts to intimidate the US government into compensating the families of the men who have died under his command over the years. The government won't negotiate with terrorists, so while they keep stringing him along, they send in a team of Navy SEALs covertly to take out Hummel and the mercenaries under his command. On this team are Connery as John Mason, a mysterious prisoner who knows the layout of Alcatraz, and Stanley Goodspeed, a chemical weapons nerd played by the star of Rage Cage Season, Sir Nicholas himself. But if they can't disarm the rockets in time and launch green smoke flares, then the experimental countermeasures will be put into effect. Air Force jets firing off thermite plasma, which will burn the entire island, hostages and all. We are going to go scene by scene and find the bits that made this film strong. Some of the ludicrous and questionable stuff, and as I said, determine why this is perhaps Bay at his best. So, first thing we get here is the score. One of Hans Zimmer's best, and he had uh, some help with it. I really enjoy this period of time in Hans Zimmer's career because you can feel him going from this very synth-heavy sort of guy who was doing a lot of, uh, you know, gun-for-hire work in the 80s to really coming into his own, like, as a as a singular composer voice during the 90s. Mm. And I think The Rock, um, like, the mid-90s especially, like, Crimson Tide, mm. The Rock, and then Armageddon are are all just chock full of either him or a lot of the people that were working kind of in his little pod. Yeah, Armageddon is Trevor Rabin. Yeah. Uh, But Uh, um, one of uh, of his pod, uh, Harry Gregson Williams, who worked on part of this, along with uh, Nick Glennie Smith, went on to do the Metal Gear 2 and 3 soundtracks. And if you listen, there is a lot of the rock in those, and there is a lot of those in the rock. Well, there's there's a lot of Metal Gear Solid like in the Rock, just premise wise in general. I mean, there's not much of a stretch to like kind of graft some of those characters onto this exact situation. But the, especially Hummel getting the rockets, and it's so perfectly placed in that opening kind of like um, sting operation. Yeah. Just boom, and it sets the tone for everything in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of that opening bit. It reminds me a lot of the opening bit of Bad Boys, actually, mm. which I watched far too much as a child. 
That and is an R-rated movie. <laughs> you noticed. Uh, no, um, I watched. I watched the hell out of Bad Boys as a child, and I remember. Um, and as I was watching this, I was watch. I was seeing those same types of um, extreme close-ups on um, uh, the very detail-heavy aspects of what's going on, which I thought was actually a really interesting way of showing this is a heist and keeping the action moving during an otherwise very plotting set of actions. I mean, basically, it's a bunch of people who are doing everything just right, and therefore it wouldn't be that interesting unless you direct it in such a way that it becomes interesting. Yeah. And Zimmer helps as well with that kind of It's kind of like driving it along so yeah. if you imagine it's, just watching that scene and all you can hear is rain you'd be like what's happening here there it's, is- it's the minor version of what I'm calling the Zimmer riff mm-hmm. because it's the same riff he also uses in Gladiator and probably most notably in Pirates only it's a minor key yeah so instead of being dun 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 it goes down at the end so dun 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 it goes. It has that drop off yeah. at the end. So it's, it's basically just a minor key of this one theme that he uses in everything. And I'm trying to kind of pick out the first movie he started using it in. It, there's some of that in The Lion King, which was 1994. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, yeah, that this was a good time for him, as you say, coming into his own as a composer. And he does yeah. blend very well with Bay because. I've obviously talked about this extensively in other Bay-heavy shows, and we'll probably be referring back to it later in this one, but one of the things I've always lamented about Michael Bay's direction style is he has this um, chemical emotional string-pulling method whereby he creates the sensation that you are feeling something even though you're actually not. But if you layer Zimmer's music on top of that, then the illusion that you are feeling something just becomes that many dimensions deeper. Yeah, that, that works. <laughs> um, the, also, we get at the beginning, uh, Hummel is going to uh, his wife's grave, which literally has the markings, his wife on it. Uh, I, I'm sure yeah. that that is actually a procedure in terms of like uh, you know, when you're going to bury two people next to each other and you just kind of prepare the grave yeah. for the living one. A, it's a bit a macabre, the, though. Well, no, no, no. The point being, the husband has to go at the top. Just logic says you put the person who died first at the top. Uh-uh. Surely, this but This is no. just, it may as well be an open grave at this point. It's like, we're just waiting yeah. for you, Hummer. <laughs> yeah. I, think the, I think the idea there, I think it was a military uh, cemetery. Mm. It's, so it's Arlington, isn't it? a military person would have been at the top. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think it, I think they are, it's never said, but I think, yes, it's definitely supposed to be Arlington. Yeah. yeah. That being said, I, I love this scene because it straight up positions Hummel as the good guy. Yeah, it, it, he takes off his wedding ring, and my speculation on that was just that I, I got to do some filthy shit here, and I don't think you'd be too happy with it. Yeah, yeah, I don't want any part of you there to see me do this. I mean, the whole. Or maybe if I look at the wedding ring, I'll actually lose my nerve on yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, feasibly so. I mean, part of the the essence of this conversation that he has with his wife is that this is clearly something that's been in the back of his mind for a long time, and he would not do it while she was still alive Man. because ultimately. 
ultimately it will bring disrepute on him. Dasana on your cow. He'll be branded a traitor. Exactly. And he didn't want any of that to stick to her. So he's waited basically until Mm. he's lost her and and now has very little left to lose. But the. He even says as much. Yeah, Mm. absolutely. He even says, like, I couldn't do this while something I had to do that I couldn't do while you were alive. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, But the. While I, I get what you mean about it positioning him as the good guy, I think it's not so much that they're positioning him as the good guy, but they are positioning him as a good guy. He is very, very definitely the antagonist, and he does some very unpleasant things and certainly sets some very unpleasant things in motion. But it's a very definite outline early in the game, before we even meet the hero, saying his his reasons for doing this are sound, his morals and his ethics. He has at least been able to settle it with himself that this is the only way he can get this right thing done. He's a way ahead of yeah. his time villain as well, or antagonist as well. If you oh, look yeah. at uh, Prince Nawada Silverlance in Hellboy 2 and then Killmonger, you're like, these are men who have been pushed and pushed and are now doing something that, fairly desperately mm. that they feel... In in Hummel's case, it's not to protect like it is the other two, uh, but in his case, it's it's all uh, technically it is. It's to compensate. Like I said, it's it's uh, his, the families that were told fairy stories, and uh, we hate movies. I'm going to keep coming back to this because they did a fantastic live show in San Francisco on this. Said this movie boils down to the American government treats veterans badly, mm. which is difficult to argue yeah. with because yeah. they do. Absolutely, and a which, huge... yeah, which is why I say that he is the good guy mm. because ultimately he is the antagonist. Yes, but what are Stanley and John trying to stop here? They're trying to stop somebody from getting the U.S. government to actually support its veterans. Mm. And, for the, and the truth coming out. Yeah, they are, they are in fact the bad guys, even if they are the protagonists. Mm. They're also trying to save the lives of everyone in San Francisco <laughs> who uh, you know, m- may get hit with VX poison gas rockets. So it's... All right, they're working for the bad guys. Yes, yeah. that's more like Because we continually get the inside information on what's going through Hummel's head and the fact that he never actually intends to launch these rockets... We know that San Francisco's people are actually never really in danger, not from Hummel anyway. Mm. But however, they are yeah. in danger from those other two. Floppy haired guy, yeah. he's a maniac. <laughs> and also, Candyman yeah. would rather take more guy. lives than when he was a ghost. It's just occurred to me that the whole process of stealing the rockets in the first place, if something had gone wrong there, oh my God, the number of people that would have got wiped out. But what about my fucking money? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love Tony Todd in this up. Uh, uh, close, close personal friend, uh, Tony. Tony Todd, by the way. Uh, we follow each other on Twitter. It's no big deal. <laughs> well, uh, definitely yeah, tweet so at the Toddmeister. This is the movie that you were great in as well, because there, there's a bunch of them out there. And having him show up, uh, that's that's kind of like this little trick that Michael Bay plays, because he just stuffs this so full of like these recognizable character actors mm. who are either like in a lot of stuff at the time or had been in a lot of stuff or we're just about to kind of, like, explode and be in everything. It makes no sense that Delroy Lindo is not in it. Uh, Right? It feels like he should (laughs) be. Like, this this should have been, like, the thing he walked onto the set of after making Congo or something. But but because he does his Michael Bay thing, 
it makes it feel like you're stepping out of Hummel's last movie where he was the hero. Mm. And now we're following up with this story where like he's, he's grown into this thing that has to go against his, his former country. And Sean Connery plays a similar thing because he's, he's not James Bond, but he may as freaking well, he's a British secret service. (laughs) And, and so you've, you've got like that, that sort of like big pounding opening where you have Hummel's very, um, very sympathetic introduction, followed by, oh shit, this guy is very good at his job, mm. and now he's got a lot of dangerous stuff. Mm. It it really sets the tone for, okay, so who's going to stop this guy? Wait, him? <laughs> <laughs> we'll move on to Stanley in just a minute. I do need to point out two things. One, uh, when Hummel goes to see his wife's grave, they do the thing which Roger Ebert pointed out. When tough men need to cry, they stand in the rain. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the other is that when they're stealing the VX uh, gas, one single green golf ball-sized pearl of this stuff like rolls along the floor and smashes, and they have to lock one of their guys in because he didn't get out in time. And then we are effectively treated to, oh, my God, this is the worst substance in existence. He turns into a baked potato while we're watching him. It's terrifying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you've got that hanging over you the entire movie. It's almost... Hitchcocky in terms of well we've got these poison gas rockets and I, I suppose you've already seen one person turn into sort of like bubbly bacon I wonder what will happen when the next <laughs> one goes off and you're just waiting for it to happen and the movie does deliver eventually mm-hmm. but in a good way rather than yeah. a horrible way yeah yeah watching it, it, David Morse's reaction was almost as bad as watching the guy turn into a baked potato yeah mm-hmm. just to- it's so gruesome I love it. it we get a little bit of that like Michael Bay nastiness but yeah. it's in a it's well executed. It's in a contained environment. Practical effects as well. That's not digital. Mm, yeah. The, You'd look to Blade for what that digital version would have been. He oh turned God. into a giant raspberry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just to uh, expand on what you said, Brendan, about the, the use of very recognisable character actors, I really like the way Michael Bay uses that in this film. There's a couple of other films where he uses it to not quite such good effect, but what he's effectively doing by casting that way is cinematic shorthand Mm. because your audience will mentally backfill who these characters are and it means you can get away with doing very little with them. Michael Bean, for example, is the leader of the SEAL team that goes in there. We all know Michael Bean. We know he's a tough mother. He's been in tough mother films. He's even been a SEAL before. Ooh, Navy SEALs. (laughs) Not that I'm saying that that's particularly good quality, but the point being, we know this man's a soldier. You literally don't have to say anything else about Michael Bean. We know who he is. The casting is is top notch. Um, By the way, I think that's the... Angus Scrimmon movie. Yeah. I think that's the first time I've ever heard Sharon ever utter the words, what I really like about what Michael Bay does here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, frame that one, you will probably never hear it. It's a one-off, folks. I mean, I, I kind of have like we'll, we'll get into Michael Bay himself later, but there's there's a lot of reasons why this is kind of the good one in his filmography. Mm, mm. Indeed, yeah. uh, we then meet Stanley Goodspeed, who uh, has spent how much seven hundred dollars on a Beatles album. It's a lot. Three hundred dollars. Yeah, no. Uh, Ish, Isherwood is disapproving. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I th- I feel like 
This is an extension of Die Hard. They're, they're, um, this was during the uh, 90s, so there was the High Octane series, so you got like Speed, which is Die Hard on a bus, Con Air, Die Hard on a plane, coming up, and yeah. this is kind of Die Hard if Hans Gruber wasn't just a thief. I, I know he's an exceptional thief, but um, like j- just stealing money. If, if he actually had an axe to grind, and you know when he's talking about the Asian dawn and doesn't mean it, I suppose the writers of this were like, well, what if he actually meant it, but it was for American soldiers? And um, the whole idea of McLean being just sort of this ordinary cop stuck in a bad situation, they go one larger on this, and they did it as well in uh, uh, your favourite um, Kurt Russell's movie, Executive Decision, I want to say? Oh. Yep. Where they basically have the lead hero be a desk jockey, be a kind of parts be a nobody just like us the the uh, the audience just sort of watching and like we'd all like to think of ourselves as being john mcclain but we're much closer to stanley goodspeed let's face it um, every yeah. Man. <laughs> and so yeah it's, it's it's almost like embracing the 90s yeah the action heroes can be sensitive and they can be maybe not so tough not john wayne anymore you say that yeah but Stanley Goodspeed, I wouldn't exactly describe him as a desk jockey. They they have. Oh yeah, he does extra- have to disarm this bomb. He loves He's pressure. He eats it for breakfast. Just this incredibly <laughs> high pressured person who has to process massive amounts of oh my god, oh my god, we're all going to die on a fairly regular basis. And he holds it together enough to to save him and and everyone else in that yeah. room. I do wonder how Marvin Ishwood got his job since he immediately starts badgering this baby and sets off the bomb. Well, it specifically says he's a trainee. All oh, right. Why would they put him yeah. in there with like that was sh- possibly a stupid to train mistake. him. <laughs> I suppose so. But. We're going to train you. Well, now go well, in there and do it for so real. You would know but, what to do in a situation like this, which is be a badass. Yeah. You shouldn't yeah. even get this... to that position if you were fucking around during the training sessions with just dummy bombs. But what this does <laughs> set up, because yes, you do have this incredibly tense scene where it's Stan's job and everybody in the room almost dies. And it's it's kind of an echo of the scene where the, the green marble got dropped. Yeah. And well, you're already tense about bubbles. that because you're like, exactly. oh god, bombs yeah. do more than just explode. So, you see, cinematic shorthand yeah. again. He uses it all the goddamn time. Anyway. Just fucking um, eating my suit. <laughs> but the point being that what that then does show is that Stanley is is great with these scenarios when it's in a contained environment, when he knows exactly what he's doing, mm. he knows what he's working with. But and, not when he's getting shot and at. He's, well, exactly. He's got, like, he's got his sprinkler system, he's got his lockdown, all of the equipment is there. But then when you get him out in the field and he's actually having to deal with real people and real situations, well, that's not real, obviously that was real, but uncontained situations that are potentially going to go beyond the his immediate area of effect. If it's going to kill a when, lot of civilians and not him. Exactly. That is not when he starts him. to get jittery and panicky mm. and, and all of that tension that he's been holding in so far in his inimitable Nicolas Cage way, i.e. not very, um, starts to come out. Nicolas Cage is not inimitable. He's very... Very imitable. Um, but yeah, no, effectively, Stan has made the most stressful day ever. This also introduced the atropine needle, uh, and it's again the guy playing Isherwood, uh, who I believe was the uh, pa- au pair in Jerry Maguire. Yes, um, was is is like. Child technician. He, yeah, child technician. He's also in High Fidelity, isn't he? <laughs> yes, he is. Barry's nemesis. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's right, yes. Um, but he, he's, he's like, look how big this is. You want me to stick this thing into my chest? Are you fucking nuts? It's just kind of like he holds it in front of the camera to make the needle look even bigger. And it, I never understood. I'm like, hang on. And I think Siska pointed this out when We Hate Movies did. It's like, right, so you're piercing your own heart. How's this even working? 
Okay. How is your, how, reason, as soon as you pull it out, why does not a fucking geyser of blood right. start erupting? Okay, you've seen uh, Pulp Fiction. You should know this. The reason that the needle has oh, to yes, be Oh, yes, that, that documentary big. Pulp Fiction. Well, no, you said, you said Tarantino did a pass on this script. My little I, black medical book. I'm wondering if that's why this friggin' needle is in here. Yeah, he's like, oh, um, no, we got to have a needle. He's just obsessed with them. Man. But the reason that the needle has to be so long is because it's got to go through the breastplate. And the, you push down the plunger. Yes, Yeah. exactly. Yeah, and then... But you've got to get it in the right place, otherwise you're just going straight through I'm, lungs. I'm still not hearing why your heart won't, I don't know, leak after this. Um, because, uh, I don't know, anything I said at this point would be speculation. Yeah. I was going to say because there's not that much actual blood in your heart chamber at any one moment, maybe. Uh-huh. I don't know. Also, the heart is a muscle, and... For something even as big as that needle seems to be, mm-hmm. that's still relatively small. It can self-seal afterward. Okay. I mean, this is not to say that you would not get medical attention as well immediately after. Mm-hmm. Apart from anything else for adrenaline overload. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so, yeah, that's that's effectively what we're given. I, I love the fact that at the end, when he holds up the needle in front of the camera, it goes like, Foom, like a fucking Wolverine claw. <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, you want the needle? Ching, there you go. <laughs> It's so big. Um, it's and the, terrifying. And, and the said. movie... <laughs> <laughs> could, could I just get the, John to shoot me in the heart? That would be easier. <laughs> Sorry, Brendan, yes? Well, it's... It, 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 like you said, it is literally like this terrifying thing to think of. And Michael Bay is like saying, yeah, no, this would suck. And the movie is actually just ridiculously good at setting up and paying off because... Like yeah. you said, we've already got the the marble, we've already got the needle, and this is literally in the scene that's mirroring what's going to happen later on yeah. when he's dealing with the next time he's exposed to gas. I this movie is so well written, which is kind of weird because it had like a million writers and a bunch of script doctoring and mm. was being like rewritten on the day, but it's so well written and well structured that it makes me furious about the rest of Michael Bay's career. Yeah, it's yeah. written by the the names officially credited are David Weisberg, Douglas S. Cook, and Mark Rosner, none of whom I've ever heard of. But um, this was only Bay's second film, and if you remember, uh, you mentioned Bad Boys earlier. That's still a really tight film. That's way up there for me. Like, I, so, Will Smith's funny oh, yeah. as fuck, and frankly, so's Martin Lawrence. So what you're saying uh-huh. is that these came out before Michael Bay decided he was the most important man in Hollywood. My theory is Armageddon brought out evil Michael Bay. I see. It's that <laughs> we've already talked about it last year. It's a sweet-natured film, but then he realized I can tweak people's emotions if I just do this and this and this. And then he went mad with power. Yep. And that's what all of Pearl Harbor is. Yep. Yep. <clears throat> and then he's well, like- this was when he was still like trying to like he was he was still trying to prove himself. You know, this is still kind of a hungry young filmmaker. He's mm. still auditioning. Mm. So yeah. he's not he can't afford to be as much of an asshole like to everyone, although he was still apparently a bit of a dick at this point. Mm-hmm. But, but he's not he's got all- a really good haircut yet. No. He's only re- he's only quite good at meetings rather than really good. Yeah. They also really lucked out because they're uncredited, but both Aaron Sorkin and Quentin Tarantino were doing a lot of script doctoring at this point. And this is one of the movies where they would just like come in and like tweak a few things here and there. I did not know about Aaron Sorkin, but that makes a hell of a lot of sense. Cons- 
considering the back yeah. and forth and back and forth, it's yeah. so smooth. I was thinking that too. Yeah. I, I had said Joss Whedon, but yeah, Aaron Sorkin's Aaron also. Sorkin, that makes I think sense. is yeah the 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 political sharpness that comes in there at points. Not it's not throughout, obviously, but there are elements of it that I could certainly see being a a product of Sorkin's imagination. In fact, honestly, there's some lines in this. If you told me Carrie Fisher had had a go at it, I'd believe you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, um, Goodspeed gets proposed to by his wife Carla and he's he's still kind of flushed with uh, anxiety and adrenaline from uh, earlier um, he's he's sat on a, uh, a couch free balling it apparently with a guitar and listening to his um, like secretly this costs a lot more than I'm going to tell you uh, Beatles nope. album hmm. that he's... was not the Beatles that was Peter oh. and Gordon yeah no you're Another absolutely right uh, you're absolutely right I was like, which which that means song he left is this from? Three hundred dollar Beatle album in the office. It better not have. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's just he'd already listened to it. He he finished on already. He was moving on to the next stuff. Like he's been freeballing it for a while. <laughs> he's got a he's really good day. boss. He's I had might like half point a day out. off now. Yeah, yeah. if somebody's and if somebody's boss says you've had a really really tense and scary morning, I think you should go home and chill. I want that boss. Yeah. Yeah, Meet the Beatles is what maybe an hour and a half's worth of music tops. He he probably went through Peter and Gordon. He probably went through uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers. You said Herman Meet the Hermit. Beatles there, didn't you? It that's it's Meet the Monkeys. It's with the Beatles. With the you're right. There you're right. Go. He probably listened to Meet the Monkeys as well. Like, that, that LP probably cost him more. First off, it's because I'm a monkey maniac. <laughs> <laughs> Ahead of the curve, by the way, he was he was all about that that like uh, that vinyl before that was like this huge cultural thing of like oh now we all have to be into vinyl. Well, maybe it's because I of this know, movie. It is Meet the Beatles. I am looking it up right now. Really? God, I want to hold your hand, this boy. All I've got to do. I saw her standing there. It won't last long. All my loving. Um. Oh, hang on, hang on. I think you Americans got slightly different uh, versions because I'm looking at with the Beatles, and that's it. Won't be long. All I've got to do, all my loving, don't bother me. I think they're two different mixes of the same similar kind of material. Huh? I th- I, well, we both right. The Beatles came out in '64 uh, when they were just coming over to the U.S., and that yeah. was their introduction to. This the is '63, so yeah, I think they repackaged it for the U.S. to give them their their hits. Okay. That would make sense. That would okay, make cool. sense. Okay, cool. And it would also make sense that uh, Stan would like that. Yeah. <clears throat> He's yeah. a total hipster. I'm worried about he has right. a he has a copy of each. Meet the Beatles <laughs> is the, uh, their first US release. Yeah. Is this just after they've been on uh, Ed Sullivan? Yeah. Okay, cool. Right, <clears throat> so Carla proposes marriage because she's pregnant, and the reason to do this is to illustrate that he's a potential family man, but also that his family itself are in jeopardy because Carla somehow winds up stubbornly coming to the most dangerous place on Earth, which is San Francisco, during The Rock. <laughs> uh, but I, I love how everything he does is awkward, even when he's getting like proposed to by his smoking hot wife, mm-hmm. like smoking hot girlfriend or even when they're having sex it's like he gets all these weird introductions just to show he's goofy at everything <laughs> yes. one thing a little peach sorbet persuasion um <laughs> okay so uh the uh marines under hummel uh, who are effectively now mercenaries as it's pointed out later because of that, because they're no longer serving but in fact threatening the US government and its people they are effectively for hire they are doing this for money they take over Alcatraz and there's a neat thing that uh, um, Hummel does to illustrate to the audience again he's not such a bad guy which is yeah he tells a a couple of uh, kids 
on a field trip to tell their teacher to get right back on the bus, ferry, ferry on the yeah. bus. That'd be get off the bus impressive. and drive out of here. <laughs> yeah, get back on the ferry, turn around right now, because basically he knows what's about to happen. Mm. Yeah, and he actually, he succeeds, because we never see any of those kids in the jail cell. They did get out in time somehow. Mm. And you theorize that it's because Michael Bay was like, I'm not working with motherfucking kids. Well, yeah, ultimately, <laughs> if he has kids on set, that means that he can only work for, what, four to six hours a day? Yeah. I don't think Michael yeah. Bay's yeah. got that kind of patience. Just put regular people in jail cells could fill them all day. But, but honestly, this is foolish on Hummel's part, I will say. I, I agree completely that it does demonstrate that he doesn't want kids getting caught up in this. But you're not telling Oh my god, she's a sociopath. That li- no, no, no. Just listen for a moment. You're not telling me that little six, seven-year-old children aren't going to immediately run... Either either they're going to think he's an idiot and not say anything, uh-huh. or they're going to immediately run up to their teacher and loudly yell at their teacher... The man over there said I should go away! At which point, any sane teacher is going to raise the alarm. I wanted to see the yeah. prison. <laughs> <laughs> what kid at that age is going to see fucking Alcatraz? Well, yes. And we're going to get all kinds of messages going, I took my child to Alcatraz <laughs> when they were one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, he takes over Alcatraz and then fucking name checks a bunch of other guys who were called traitors by King George III. Washington, Jefferson, and John Adams. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, uh, a curious scene because effectively he's... He's almost deluding himself at this point that that when they get to the end of this, they're going to be considered heroes of the military mm. as opposed to just, uh, we blew these people up with thermite plasma because they threatened the US this, government. They are Benedict Arnold traitors. There is a very significant reason why this line is particularly awkward now. Yeah. Because I can almost guarantee you that some twat stood in the Capitol Said the same the shit. Said the same thing. Yeah. He was wearing a buffalo hat and he was like, <laughs> they said that about Washington, Jefferson, Adams. Who was the other one? Hamilton. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, I mean that makes that. it makes things like White House Down also difficult to uh, watch now. I would imagine I haven't mm-hmm. seen that for a while, but uh, yeah. yeah, or indeed Olympus has fallen. Okay, so then he calls the FBI, which considering Aaron Sorkin's in there, I hope every single line from John Spencer's mouth was written by Aaron Sorkin for him because that that would make sense. Yes. Um, so if, if he didn't like meet him on this, he had to have had this guy in the back of his mind when he was looking around for casting for the West Wing. What a penny in the job. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I was so happy to see John Spencer in this. I'd forgotten that he was in this movie. He is so quietly intense and I love it. He is really good at portraying this sense of constant tension mixed with competence. Yeah. I mean, we need someone who's old enough to know Mason and to be like, I hate you so much, Mason. Well, I hate you so much, too. And it's just, it's, it's almost, that's almost a grumpy old man at that point. Well, yeah. here's the thing. If, if we're going with the assumption here that Mason is basically a retired James Bond mm-hmm. who eventually got caught by the FBI. If and... you go with the time he got caught in 62, he basically would have been caught just after Dr. No. So, like, he never got to do all the other Bond films. It was like, oh, so that's all I do. Dr. No James Bond films. Okay, well, that's your, there you go, then. That's your dividing timeline. Yeah. He was a, it was a potential James Bond who spent most of his life in jail instead. Yeah, yeah. and had to be yeah. replaced with someone else. Yeah. Um, so but, yeah, or maybe even from Russia with Love, because, I mean, he did that twice. Indeed. But if, if that's the... Do you mean Thunderball? 
Do I mean Thunderball? You do. Thunderball was remade as Never Say Never Again. That was Thunderball. Okay. I, 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 That's so hard. You're right. You're right. <laughs> it turns out I'm a barn maniac. But if, yeah. <laughs> if we assume that Mason is this retired James Bond type, then Womack is the desk jockey that brought him in. Yeah. Yeah. It makes I mean... Now, I've batted the headcanon of this is an old James Bond film around for decades now. But I went digging for this show, and after we'd recorded it, I found this by Pentex Productions. Usually, I'm not a massive fan of fan theories. They tend to twist facts to suit theories rather than theories to suit facts. But this one is scrupulously well-researched. It's compelling. It's persuasive. It's the sort of thing I'd like to believe. And it goes on way longer than the boiled-down, condensed version that I'm going to give to you here. So, take it away, The Penguin from Pentax Productions. Although Never Say Never Again stars Sean Connery as James Bond, it is not part of the Eon Productions film canon or continuity. My argument is that the Bond shown in the six Eon films starring Sean Connery is the same person who appears in The Rock, so I won't be looking at Never Say Never Again in this video. The code name is 007. The real person's name is James Bond. So why is Sean Connery called John Mason and The Rock? Well, it's simple. John Mason is the code name. James Bond frequently uses fake names. Mr. and Mrs. David Somerset. The name is James St. John Spine. I'm Mr. Arlington Beach. You're Miss Stephanie Broadchester here. I am not. You're going to have to trust me on this. He also usually has fake documents to support his cover identity. If we assume Bond was captured, then it makes sense he was processed under the name listed in his fake passport. In this case, John Mason. We consistently see how M puts Queen and Country above the life of his or her agents, including Bond. If M thought that it was in MI6's interest for Bond to stay captured, then he would leave him there. We can assume this is what happened in The Rock. Of course, the British claim they never heard of him. Let's look at the timelines. In The Rock, we learned that Mason was incarcerated on Alcatraz in 1962, escaped in 63. So 1962 is our first data point, the same year Dr. No came out. If you haven't seen it, Dr. No ends with Bond destroying Dr. No's evil lair after the villain tried to disrupt a rocket launch at Cape Canaveral. He is rescued by Felix Leiter from the CIA, but because Bond is Bond, he would rather get on with Honey Rider than be rescued, so he disconnects the tow rope. It's a typical James Bond movie ending, but let's be real about this. Leiter rocks up with a boat full of heavily armed marines. They're not all there to rescue Bond, they're rounding up the henchmen who escaped from Dr. No's evil lair and are throwing them in the 1960s equivalent of Guantanamo Bay. Now, Leiter knows Bond is a spy, so made sure to rescue him, but after Bond gives him the slip, he must have just been picked up by some random navy patrol and got lumped in with all the other prisoners. Without the CIA to vouch for him, Bond got locked up with the rest of the henchmen in Alcatraz under the fake name of John Mason. And of course, he escaped. In Dr. No itself, we actually see Bond escaping from a prison, proving he was more than capable of busting out of Alcatraz. 1962, J. Edgar Hoover is head of the FBI, some say the country. It's no secret he kept microphone files of prominent Americans, British members of parliament, even the prime minister. Mason was the British operative who stole the files, but our bureau agents caught him at the Canadian border. Now, this is where The Rock's own continuity gets a bit confused. Womack's comment implies Mason stole the microfilm in 1962, but the movie mentions twice that it contains the truth about the JFK assassination. You wanna know who really killed JFK? 
So this microfilm can't possibly have existed before November 1963, so we know for a fact that Bond's first imprisonment in Alcatraz was unrelated to the microfilm. Moving on, the rock establishes that Mason was recaptured sometime after he escaped in 1963, but it never makes clear exactly when this happened. The closest thing we have to a data point on that is Mason's daughter, Jade. When Womack is asked why the notorious FBI founder J. Edgar Hoover didn't use Jade as leverage over Mason to reveal the location of the stolen microfilm, Womack says this. Hoover was dead in 72. She wasn't born yet. This tells us two things. One, that the daughter was born sometime after Hoover died in May 1972, meaning Mason was not in prison for all of 1972. The second thing it tells us is that Mason didn't steal the microfilm in 1962. He stole it after Hoover's death. Because we know what John Mason was doing between 1963 and 1972. He was being James Bond. Meeting in a bar after a Led Zeppelin concert. Hit out. And that was the result. Led Zeppelin toured North America in June 1972, so again, the real world history checks out. After learning that Jade's mother was pregnant, Connery's Bond began to reflect on his life and career, something we have seen other Bonds do. You do what I do for too long, and there won't be any soul left to salvage. He decides to hang up the pistol and retire once and for all. But a few weeks earlier, something else happened. J. Edgar Hoover died on the 2nd of May 1972, leaving a leadership vacuum in the FBI. MI6 saw the opportunity for Bond to exploit the vacuum and steal the microfilm. M agrees to Bond retiring if he can pull off this one final mission. So Bond stashes the microfilm in Kansas and flees to the border, only to be captured and locked up, this time for good. When he is captured and the FBI realize he was an undercover agent, Bond tells them his real name is John Mason to protect MI6. The FBI realize he is the same person who escaped Alcatraz in 1963. They lock him up, MI6 deny all knowledge of him, and Bond stays in prison until 1995. It feels like when he says Warmack, I should have known you piece of shit. It's like this real kind of, oh, I, I don't, I, like, th that whole scene when he smashes through the window, it serves no purpose other than to make Mason mistrust the people who are sending them out there, which is a good way of kind of cordoning off everyone in this film and going, right, so we can't trust these guys, we can't trust these guys, what's the right thing to do here? Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It also shows us what he can do with a quarter and a teacup. Oh, Yeah. It's it, he's kind of MacGyver in this in some degree. Um, actually, yeah, that that then leads that. Oh my God, that pays off the using the little lock thing at the end when he gets out of his cell. Yep. Ah, I, I yeah, wouldn't huh? be surprised if Michael if the, no Michael Bay didn't write it. I wouldn't be surprised. I, if I told this you this written. movie makes me mad. They started at the beginning and the end simultaneously and kind of mirror it and met in the middle. But that's how I like to write. The whole way, okay, so I'm going to have this here. If I set this up in a way here that makes it, that slightly misdirects you and you think it's about this, but you've already sewn that piece of evidence that then pays off later, as opposed to, well, it's obviously the password's going to be the fairy tale, the, the nursery rhyme he told his daughter. Mm. Like when, when that piece of information just gets delivered, it's like, aren't we lucky we were here to get all that information? Seemed extraneous at the time. Yeah. Or yeah. Um, who's its habit of, oh, oh this safe has a retinal scan. We have no idea how anybody got in. Oh, really? Dan Brown. Is there a fountain pen lying around anywhere? Yeah. Is there an eye on the end of it? No one else has seen Demolition yes. Man. Mm. Um, so, yeah, they have this meeting which Hummel kind of gate crashes <laughs> and says, this is Hummel for, for The Rock. And 
We Hate Movies pointed this out, and it's maybe one of my favorite of their gags. And they didn't really run with it for too long, but it's... Michael Bay does his Michael Bay thing of going, you know those clowns in the White House? You can't trust them. Do you know who the real heroes of America are? He's done the same thing about don't trust people in the White House many times during Transformers as well. Everyone's incompetent. No one knows what they're doing. The chief of staff is who Leo McGarry was in The West Wing. So John Spencer basically had that job before and was incredibly good at it. So, But apparently this uh, chief of staff, Hayden Sinclair, is some teenager who was popping zits on his face while uh, Hummel was doing very violent things in Saigon. But the best bit, Sinclair's like, well, I don't know anything about chemical weapons. How many people could die if uh, one of these rockets is launched? And the general sort of leans towards him once Hummel's off and says... 60 or 70, and he's like, well, that's not so bad. And then the devil goes, thousand, you idiot, you fucking moron, 70,000. And it's like, why didn't you just say 70,000? <laughs> you are so fucking dumb, thousand. You can't change the rules on me after I react. Hey, Steve. Yo. Do you like pizza? Yeah, sure. With fucking monkey shit on it, you <laughs> gross asshole. God damn it. Hey, Eric, do you like sex? Yeah. With children, you sick fuck! Oh my god, you heard him! He said it! You can't do that! That's not how shit works! Yeah. Or at least put a K at the end of that. Like, what What were we supposed to think? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, that all, that might be an Aaron Sorkin thing, actually, because um, the way that Sorkin works in the West Wing often is to have some complete prat say something to, say, Toby, uh, who then tears him a new asshole. <laughs> yeah. I'm saying I interviewed the guy. I know how to spell Gaddafi. <laughs> But yeah, it's, it's a good way of kind of making Chief of Staff Hayden Sinclair the idiot in the room while all these other, like, decent military men... I mean, there seems to be no one to blame on this front, except for the fact that they mention that the money that is supposed to be divided out amongst the uh, families of the deceased um, men who died in the field under Hummel's orders are to be paid from the Red Sea Trading Company Slush Fund which is effectively money from illegal arms deals. And it doesn't really belong to anyone, but it seems like it's the government's piggy bank, if you will. Mm. And Is it just me, or is calling it the Red Sea Trading Company a little bit of a Semitic dog whistle? A little bit. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, these, this is from the arms we sold to Israel. Oh. Okay. Yep. That's, that's, that's a very 90s line. Um, so, yeah. ult- but uh, the point is that he lays down that this thing exists, and effectively, no one's going to go hungry if this money is used. He's been very careful about what, how much he's asking for, and where it comes from, which again kind of puts an extra tick next to Hummel for doing things, even though he's doing them with a very threatening uh, manner. He's trying to do right and actually kind of making it real fucking easy for the government to say, you know what, as long as this doesn't go get out, we could just say yes and get this guy off our backs. Like, yeah, like, nobody needs to know about this. Hmm. We get our weapons back. Because the rockets cost a bit. And that's it. Like, if, if he just said, you know what, fuck you, and threw the rockets in the sea, then, <laughs> then they've yeah. missed out on lots of expensive rockets. Plus, San Francisco Bay is going to be a little itchy to go swimming in for a while. So then we meet uh, John Mason again when... Uh, uh, um, uh, Paxton uh, and Womack 
and uh, Stanley sort of converge on this. The way that Michael Bay <laughs> sort of epitomizes him is in that one of that first section. He goes, he's a professional escape artist. So this is Spencer talking. And then we get like a shot at like across Sean Connery's face, but he, he looks like he's lying on the bed, but he's not sleeping. So he's constantly thinking. There's all these books that, you know, he's, he's, he's well read. And then like it shows the chain just kind of slop down in the middle. You can see basically how Zack Snyder watched Michael Bay films, Jack in it, and went, I'm going to do that <laughs> as well. Oh, there's... yeah, no, there's there's a direct line from Tony Scott to yeah. Michael Bay yeah. to Zack Snyder. Yep. Oh, my God. And, and it's decaying Frank each Miller time. Miller slides yeah. in at the, at the side yeah. and just... Ill. Yeah, Miller himself did end up directing a couple of films that were bad. Mm. But, uh, yeah, it's it's the, the, the way that uh, Connery is introduced... Uh, it, you can kind of get with the whole, okay, so this guy's been away for God knows how long. He's got grizzly man hair. And then they send in Stanley, and he doesn't make a great impression first. So you've already got these two off on a bad foot, and it's kind of an odd couple where Mason's like, you're a stupid little boy. And Nick Cage is like, actually, I'm the only one who could do these rockets thing. Hi. I'm an agent with the uh, federal FBI. Uh... Well, my, I'm Stanley Goodspeed. But of course you are. Well, at least he got his name right. Of course I am. And you have an emergency. That's right. And you need my help. Exactly right. Coffee. No, no, I'm fine, thank you. Offer me coffee. Oh, yes. Well, that was, in fact, going to be my next... Can we get a cup of coffee in here, please? I'll uh, take these off. Mr. Mason, really. I'll take a gesture of your good faith. Prisoner requests to have his handcuffs taken off. Why don't you go ahead and have his handcuffs taken off, please? Well, I guess that's one way to go. This is a pardon and release contract from the Attorney General's office. Now, it makes you a free man, provided you cooperate. So if you'll just uh, sign uh, uh, where it says... Signature. That's, yes, signature. Temio Daneus McDonough Ferentus. I fear the Greeks, even when they bring gifts. An educated man. That rules out the possibility of you being a field agent. In point of fact, I am a field agent, Mr. Mason. Really? Yes. In which field? Anti-terrorism. Then you're trained in weaponry, explosives, and mortal combat. Well trained. Then it's the Fairmont Hotel. I want a sweet, a shower, a shave, and the feel of a suit. May I also suggest uh, a haircut? Am I out of style? Unless you're a 20-year-old guitarist from Seattle. It's a grudge thing. He kind of has to get over his initial trepidation, but you pointed out, Sharon, that um, when uh, Walmack meets Goodspeed and starts asking him about VX gas, there's a nice little bit of giving the character away to the audience. Mm, which yeah, is... well, the, the fact that Stanley is, like... In order to establish that 
Goodspeed is the best person for the job, Womack is, is effectively checking his references. He runs mm. through all of his uh, qualifications and asks him a couple of questions about his, uh, his interest in uh, his job, basically. Like, how well do you know the thing that you're doing? And the reason for that is... Basically so that when he then says to Stanley, what does this gas actually do? And Stanley's response is immediately extremely serious and and it's the worst thing he can possibly Mm. imagine, something that they definitely wish they 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 didn't have anymore. When he's already said how excited he gets about chemistry, we know this shit is bad because it's the gas that Stanley is scared of. Yeah. Yeah, it would like it would be like, I am really into wolves. Oh wow! This seems to be a werewolf. Yeah, there's a that bad wolf. Yeah, but uh, Connery has a, a a real presence in this. Or Hooper. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Mm. Actually, thinking about it, there yes. is definitely a Ho- Hooper and Quint energy between these two. Yeah. 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 What we lack is a Brody. Well, uh, <laughs> a Brody would almost be too steadying an influence at this point. So you take yeah. the two polar extremes and uh, you kind of shove them in together. Mm. Uh, but. Honestly, I can't think of another film where Connery has had such a stern presence that maintained itself and gave him things to do that matched that. Like, he gets to really do some awesome things for an old actor. Because, like, you can see it when they give gifts to old male actors. They're like, look, you're going to be really tough in this one, Liam Neeson, in all the Taken films. Uh, And they they sometimes overplay their hand. But Mm. the way that Connery plays it in this... He gives a, a little, he's humorous at times, but he's got this kind of, like, get-the-job-done thing going on. But the unspoken side of his performance is, the moment that the job is done, I am going to mysteriously disappear, one way or another. Part of it is because he's effectively support. His character is able to be sparing mm. with the, the screen time that he has. So it's not, the pressure is not on him to be engaging and funny in a modern context all the time. Yeah. Because when Connery is running the show, past a certain point in time, he's boring. Yeah. Now, you could say that there's a, uh, you know, this is the old dog teaching the young dog how to be tough and shut off those emotions and be a killer and, you know, just basically slapping him until he's, you know, whipped into shape. But the actual end of the film, Stanley's still Stanley. He's been able to do some terrifying things and, and Mason helped him get through that, but he's not been transformed into this perfect killing machine. And actually, There's actually a really tricky needle that they thread specifically with that yeah. that also has to do with where the overall morality of the film kind of lands in the way they position both Hummel and Connery mm. as these sort of like opposite sides but very similar tactics mm. and they're both very toxic examples at times mm. and Cage ends up not exactly walking in Connery's footsteps. He's sort of like taking some of that but still like you said still being cage like it's it's sort of like him taking from these two characters it's still in a very 90s way so there's still a bit of chest thumping and you know prom queen fucking and and all that kind of nonsense Mm. but it's kind of shocking how untoxic he is at the very end of the movie there's an element of this i think right Tell me if you think I've read way too much into this because it is extremely subtle and it could be that I'm picking something out that was never intended to be there. But I think that you, your uh, your linchpin for how this is handled is Jade. I was going to say, yeah. Because 
the whose way... music comes in at the end. Like yeah. this, it's that. Mm-hmm. We have we, we start yeah. the film setting up the fact the that Irish Stanley flute. is going to be a father. Mm-hmm. Then halfway through, we find out that Mason already is a father, and his relationship with his child is royally fucked. Mm. Then we find out that. Mason is critical of Stanley's way of doing things and and there is the opportunity for Stanley to start going down that path and learning from Mason and and going that way. But I think because of the way the relationship with Jade's been set up already, that there is a hint there of, no, Stanley, you don't want to do this because if you do, then your opportunity to be a good father is going to fall away. Also, while Mason teaches him bravery for the immediate, when push comes to shove and they get out of their cells, Mason's decision is, off this bloody island, he runs away. Mm -hmm. And Stan has to stand behind him shouting, I'm going to stay here risking my life to do the right thing. And eventually Mason comes back they teach each other exactly so Stanley is actually having an influence on Mason and also you've got Hommel and Mason both there as examples of people who um, worked for government who um, cut them loose and just let go of them and didn't hold any responsibility towards supporting them once they'd outlived their usefulness and effectively Stanley is um, kind of recognising that at the end because the thing he he does is very much against what the FBI would want him yeah, to do. Yeah, he doesn't show up in an FBI suit and say, ma'am, we need to uh, inspect your uh, pews and then we're going to recover this microfilm. He turns up in a ratty Hawaiian shirt on their honeymoon, runs in, commits yep. vandalism and then runs out again that, declaring himself the winner. That <laughs> is a man yeah. who has handed his notice to John Spencer. Yeah. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> I, I theorised after watching it today that he actually would, in fact, deliver this microfilm to the FBI just to say, you no longer need to worry about this. Here it is. I may have looked at it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, maybe some copies are out there. Maybe you'll leave us alone. It feels like if he just, like, hid it and then or didn't sell it to the highest bidder. I mean, and We Hate Movies pointed this out. Uh, John Spencer says the alien landing at Roswell, and they're like, whoa, 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 what? I don't give a fuck who killed JFK. Aliens? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the first thing you ask about. There's aliens out there, and you still got us worrying about Hubble and VX gas. What the hell? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah can't you call the aliens to have them fix this shit? Yeah. Don't they have thermite, whatever? Mm. Um, I think there's there's one little bit when they're uh, they're driving away from the uh, the initial um, interview with Mason. Goodspeed tries to play that's a need to know thing, and you don't need to know because he's just been told that. So he he parrots it back to Mason, who barks right in his face. But that whole it's a need to know thing, and you don't need to know that is exemplary of the government shutting them out and just going, look, you are this level. Yeah, you will do only as much as we ask you to, and then just sort of shunt them out that way. It's yeah. It seems to be a little confused as to uh, like, is it? Do we trust the military but not the FBI? Do we trust the FBI but not the government? Do we trust the government but not the military? We're all cogs in the system, and they once they are finished having their use of us, will be ejected. Yeah, and frankly, any organisation that compartmentalises as much as all of those three establishments do, hmm. you deal with. With great caution. So they go to a hotel and Mason gets a haircut and looks fucking stunning for Connery's age at that oh, point. Oh, yeah. He's I'm really cool. Also, for older yeah. men also generally, for, but um, nice. It's yeah. a silver fox. Yeah, and for having not used uh, shears somehow. <laughs> that with was scissors, amazing. this man could kill you. 
also, it, it has to be mentioned that the uh, the stylist who uh, sorts his hair out is a Michael Bay gay man, as in the gayest of gay men that gay had ever stereotypically gayed. Yep. And they will not let him say one thing without hammering that home yet again. It's like, yeah. okay, this is what we can expect from you in the future, Mike. Yeah, this is the downside of Michael Bay's cinematic shorthand. He works in extremely offensive stereotypes sometimes. <laughs> uh, and I say extremely offensive because he clearly thinks this is just Michael Bay being nice. Yeah, he thinks it's funny. He thinks it's hilarious. But the bottom line is, it's the fact that you don't let black people or gay people do or be anything else, Mike. You, they're just there for comic relief. We do get a bit of Bakeem Woodbine. We do get a bit of... Uh, Tony Todd, obviously, mm. ma- maintains his villainy. True, although, again, there is a great deal of vicious humour in the way Tony Todd's performance. Oh yeah, yeah. But I think a lot of that comes from him. <laughs> and then there's that American agent who does nothing in particular who is mm. black. But there's definitely three black people in this movie who are symptomatic of Michael Bay's. You know, you know who's funny? Black people. Two of them are hostages. Like, what kind of fucked up tour is this? And then a woman who screams about having a gun. And then later, when the uh, the trolley car gets blown through the air, the trolley driver, like first off, has been like, "Save yourself!" And then, "Come on, hunt him down." That motherfucker ain't safe nowhere. And it's like, yeah, again, stereotype. Cool. Okay. And yeah. it's it's like uh, Homer Simpson trying to do the, you know what? The I have a whole lot of jokes on the difference between white people and black people. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's again like when he's directing Bad Boys, one that uh, that you could he just about holds that together. But there's some fucking offensive shit in Bad Boys too. We then get to this car chase. Now, I've heard repeatedly that Michael Bay is a fantastic action director, and I've gone, nope. And I've also heard repeatedly that Michael Bay can't uh, film car chases. And for this one, I'll say it's a pretty damn good car chase. It's got an actual story behind it because yeah. it's it's literally about these two characters testing each other out as mm-hmm. much as anything else. Because there's no reason that, that good speed should be able to keep up with Mason. And Mason knows that. And the fact that he doesn't quite catch up to him during the car chase, but is very clearly the one person who's able to keep tabs on him for a mm-hmm. while, and then does detective work to to track him down, and then decides to be, you know, not a dickhead, is, is very clearly like, this is where they don't start trusting each other, but it's where there is a connection formed. And so the chase has a point other than just, blow up a bunch of cars and shake the camera from side to side when you're filming the actors driving. Yeah. Yeah. I always had a good sense of the geography of the chase. Yeah. Which is not something that you normally get with a Michael Bay action sequence. Yeah. But he, he made a good he did a good job of occasionally pulling the camera back and showing us where these uh, cars were in relation to each other mm-hmm. and in relation to everything else. Plus he also it was ham-fisted, but he did use it as an opportunity to characterize Mason a little bit by having him be unwilling to run over a little old lady. So when the guys in the wheelchairs turn up to start crossing the road, it is a bit like chickens and watermelons. Like Those guys occasionally walk back and forth with a glass pane. Yeah. 
It's it's the uh, the woman with the. Uh, it was just cans in speed. Where it was like you could see that there's this massive bus careering down the street. Get the fuck back! Like you could hear Mason coming for it. Well, I feel like people in wheelchairs would be a little more cautious than that. Um, it is probably worth pointing out as well that there are eleven people credited as second unit director or assistant director ah. for this film. It is entirely likely that they had a lot of help with the action stuff. Maybe so. Although the editing does feel like a. Mm. a bay. Uh, film and there's that thing. There's a lot of um, close-ups on the cars just to give you that sort of emotional vigor. Well, they're just like, a, like they're going fast. And then there's uh, a lot of mid shots just to illustrate where they're traveling to, and you know when. There's one of the simplest pieces of chase narrative is. The, the car in front goes round a bend, then the car behind goes round the same bend, and that, again, that gives you the geography, it gives you a sense of how, how far behind the, uh, the other one is, and because they're two very different vehicles, we get like two different types of, uh, of, of how they can skid around. It's neatly done, and, and obviously color-coded, that beautiful yellow Ferrari F350. It became one of my favorite cars for ages, and just seeing it crushed is a tragedy. Yeah. <clears throat> Although we also Ferrari. get... We, wasn't mine. Wasn't mine. Neither is this. We also get yeah. the this shit just got real moment straight away as, as good speed stands up at that point. Straight out of the bad boys, it became the thing that uh, Bay was going to do as a signature every time. Also completely forgot the bit where uh, um, Connery throws... Spencer over the side of a hotel and he ends up battling pigeons in midair. It's a, it's a great moment of, well, you shake on it. Ha ha ha, fuck you, Warmack. It's, it's just like, he didn't have to do that at all. You could just have punched him out. Uh, like, we can see he's totally fit and able to do that later on. Yeah. But no, yeah he, no. he, did it he did it just to embarrass him. Yeah. Mm he's -hmm. getting very heavy. After that, as you said, we meet uh, uh, Jane Angelou, played by uh, young Claire Falani, who was just entering the Claire-naissance. She'd been in Mallrats. She was coming up on Meet Joe Black. It's, it, was a, it was a fairly short time. Oh, Mystery Men was there as well. We've mentioned her before. <laughs> this is probably one of her better roles, because even though it's small and she doesn't really get to do much, there's that sense that she's definitely a person and she had her own life. That's, that's a thing, actually. Like... Even though she doesn't do much, because of the picture they paint regarding the chronology of everything, you kind of get the feeling that Jade was having a day anyway, and then she gets a call from her dad who says, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just in town, and, and he didn't tell her the whole thing about, I broke out of prison. But, and um, she's not hypersexualized yeah. or made the butt of a joke in the way that, like, basically most other female characters in Michael Bay movies are, that this... Uh, while while Carla is obviously having a lot of fun when she's having sex with Goodspeed, they're not like leering at even her, even mm. like in like what you would consider the classic Michael Bay, like oh yeah, this is where we're gonna leer at the at the eye candy. Like there's yeah, it, she's literally nice to... having sex with somebody and somehow and only naked from basically the waist down. And so this is like maybe the one movie where we don't have as much of that sort of like heavy male gaze on the female characters. Mm. And you're right. It does make, 
it does make all of them feel like they they exist to have their own purpose as opposed to be props for someone else's purpose. It's still a very dude-driven movie. Women don't, don't get to do anything. But given the insanely low bar that Michael Bay sets himself when it comes to handling of women, you know, 51% of the human population of this planet, this at least comes off as dismissive rather than being a total creep. Big old round of applause for Michael. These days he'd actually film up her anus for, for that particular <laughs> sex scene. Um, but uh, but yeah, the uh, what Jade represents is ultimately um, it, it's to to make a man uh, feel like he has more of a purpose. It's it's uh, John Mason's potential future, and they play that that the, the sweet Irish uh, flute just to illustrate that there is another side to Mason, something that he would like to pursue. Well, I'd like to think it would have led somewhere if only. If only what? Six federal marshals hadn't kicked down a door and dragged you back to prison. I'm sorry. It's all right. So they let you out? Yeah. That's good. What did you do? Jade, I don't have a great deal of time here. But I'll be coming back. And uh, maybe we can... What? We can what? You know... You're almost the only evidence that I exist. But I don't know you. That's what I want to change, right? I've rehearsed this speech a thousand times in the chance that we would meet. Here we are. And I'm lost. Well, I don't know how I'm supposed to be feeling either. Jade, I'm not an evil man. If you can believe that, then it's a start. Okay. Is this about you? You broke out of prison again, didn't you? Why did you come to me? FBI, ma'am. Father's working with us. He's helping us resolve a dangerous situation. He is? Yes, ma'am. Well, gee whiz, John, I guess we ought to get going, huh? Whatever you say, Stan. Thank you for that. You could have handled it differently. What do you say we cut the chit-chat a-hole? You almost got me killed twice, and my jaw hurts like hell. And then we get Mission Control, and Stan like starts to get really wobbly legs because he starts to realize, oh god, they really are going to send me out to do this shit. And I've already like, my adrenaline was shot to hell yesterday already from that fucking baby bomb. Then I had to have this the most terrifying car chase that I could ever imagine I could be a part of. Now I'm going to be sent out to do this shit. Plus, my adrenaline was shot to shit by the baby bomb that Carla dropped on me. That's true. Yeah. And he gets to be emotionally vulnerable in in like a work context with a coworker who doesn't like who's who's supportive of him but not in 
an entirely toxic way. This is kind of a, again, this is a weird scene to see in a Michael Bay movie because mm. it's like two humans are doing it. Yeah, you got to be all right. It's yeah. as opposed to butch up or, or you know, man up or whatever fucking shit that can be shoveled yeah. out. Rub some the, dirt in it. Yeah. Walk it off. Yeah, no, it's it's literally reminding him, it's like, no, you, you have a specialty. You're good at your job. And what you're about to do is go and do your job. So you just focus on that part. What he's, what he's basically telling him is like what we saw visualized earlier, Put yourself in the box and focus on doing your thing and let everyone else around you do their job. But you can do this. I love how we're giving Michael Bay cookies here for baseline decency. <laughs> you were terrible for a change. <laughs> but I mean, I liked so the weird, rock. But it is I- effective. Yeah, but it is. But I liked The Rock when I saw it at the cinema in 1996. This was, I think, uh, actually, it's kind of an important movie for me and uh, uh, one of my longtime, uh, lifetime friends, Paul, because this is like one of the first times, that, and Tony was there as well, that we all sat down to a movie in the cinema together. And this sort of was leading up to 1997, which is when I started going on my own all the time. My love for cinema began around this time. So seeing The Rock was a huge deal. And you can trace a line from that day to the formation of Digital Cowboys. Thence to Digital Gonzo, thence to Digital Drift, School of Movies, New Century. This is, oh my God, what would have happened if I didn't go see The Rock that day? And that Christmas, Paul and I gave each other the VHS of The Rock each. So we just like went to HMV, bought it, and I was like, there you go, sir. Thank you very much. There you go, sir. And just, <laughs> it, was, uh, it, it was a time. This didn't feel like a lot of other action movies. Like If you remember, this was ar- around the time that the, the muscle-bound movies of the 80s, that you know, the, your, your first Blood Part 2s and your, and your everything with Van Damme's in it and uh, you know most of Stallone's output, apart from the slightly more clever ones. A good half of Schwarzenegger's less memorable backlog. Steven Seagal had already peaked and subsided with Under Siege. The kind of meathead mentality to action movies. But this one, it it had other things going on. And we'll definitely be talking nearer the end about the whole, the, the validity of having Hummel be this level of believing he's in the right. It really is a bit of a Trojan horse in how it does, like, like you say, it's different from a lot of the, the Meathead era. It's not Stallone. It's not Schwarzenegger. What it's sort of doing is carrying the torch of Die Hard. Yeah. So you've, you've got all of the big, crazy, high-octane, stunt-based action that's going on in the 90s. But if you look at, like, John McClane, Stanley Goodspeed, Neo, Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man, that's, like, the evolution of the the blockbuster action hero yeah in four very solid points like this this guy is a it's a big old nerd he's still doing action hero stuff but it's it is a very different vibe that Nicolas Cage specifically brings to the movie just because he's Nicolas Cage in a Jerry Bruckheimer joint it's also similar to another film that I mentioned uh, before we started Escape from New York which considering we've already said this has ties with Metal Gear Solid I mean the fact that he's called Snake in that that was a huge reason why and has the eye patch informing on the character of Solid Snake and Big Boss but the whole claustrophobic time limit it's an island you go out there do your thing come back quick otherwise disaster mm. Only this time there are actually genuinely innocent people who might get hurt as opposed to a president who you're like, ah, fuck this guy. That type of action hero as well is pre the era of fuck the experts. 
They get Stanley in because he is an expert. They get Mason in because he is an expert on Alcatraz. There is a specific feeling of we need the right person for the right job going on here, which later on it just becomes all of these problems are nails. Somebody go and get me the biggest hammer you can find. Uh, Yeah, especially if you look at at the way that uh, Sam Witwicky is portrayed in all of Michael Bay's movies of him. He's a critique on the audience. This is Michael Bay saying, this is you, you fucking nerd. You're all shit. All you do is whack off all day. Get a real girl. Here, I got you a real girl to enjoy, like an eclair. She's real, and I made sure of that by giving her no thoughts or agency of her own. Here's another awkward joke with your parents about masturbation, which you do constantly. I've never jacked it in my entire life. Too busy out shagging the birds. But by framing that kind of person as a hero, what you're effectively saying is, it doesn't matter if you are good at nothing. We don't need experts for this. All you have to do is have a dick and be in the right place at the right time. Well, he's got a dick. He's, he's here. here. That's the best we can expact at this point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you right now, yours. the Sex Pistols, I can fucking dick on the fucking Sex Pistols. The Sex Pistols shit on me. Did he suggest that you couldn't dick on the Sex Pistols? <laughs> I, I, think, I think that you can dick on them. <laughs> Well, I've got a dick. I'm here. He has got a dick and he's here. I think that's the best we can hope for tonight. Okay, so we're... That's how you get Mark Wahlberg wielding Excalibur. Oh, no, that actually happened. Oh, God. Is that the timeline we're in where that happened? Unfortunately, yes, we are still in that timeline. Did that fifth movie make more than Bumblebee? It did. Anyway, so we're on the island now, and there's the, the bit when I pointed out when they're jumping out of the helicopter and into the, um, the the water and like going through in scuba gear to get under the island. I was like, "How is this not really, really visible? This is a glowing purple thing floating out what a hundred feet from Alcatraz Island. How are they not spotting it?" And they actually do. Very shortly after I was asking that question, yeah. they were like, "Get some guys to that part of the island." It's, it I just it's. It, Why weren't they just wearing night vision goggles? Why wasn't the helicopter just completely black? Because you can't then film it. Plus, there's the sound of a helicopter, you know. So it's... uh, But but the actual dive sequence, followed by Mason twirling through this fucking furnace thing, which... uh, We Hate Movies again pointed out, why is this thing still on? Like, what's it doing? Is this for the tourists? (laughs) Look, the plot oh, says the that he has to go through the yeah. chompers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's the power plant for the island, so maybe it is on uh, when the island is being used for to show tourists yeah, to nice. run the electronics on it. Yeah. Or maybe uh, Hummel turned it on in order to run the more complex electronics. Yeah. I suppose, yeah, you got to run the um, the lights, the lamps off something, otherwise you're going to go completely dark. And the cells. And the cells. Oh, yeah. Are they electronically powered? The fact that um, well, electrically powered. Uh, Mason was able to open his remotely suggests there's something at the very least magnetic, uh, mm. magnetic going on there. All right. Yeah, but yeah, it, it's because if they were getting power from the mainland, mm. well, that would have been cut off immediately. Yeah, yeah. So it had, so they had to have something on the island that it was producing power. It's noteworthy, by the way. This was a, a civil war fort, this island. And um, they turned it into a prison in 1932. And they closed it as a prison in 1964. So it's like 32 years of Alcatraz actually being a prison. And it's a prison forever now in everyone's heads. 
It was yeah. for um, uh, criminals in the, the sort of the, the prohibition era to uh, to be incarcerated. And it feels like uh, Mason is sort of, uh, if, if they watched the Escape from Alcatraz film with um, Clint Eastwood and went, but what if that was James Bond? Well, the fact that it's both a prison break-in and then later breakout movie gives Bay the chance to play with a lot of different action scenarios yeah. so that you get... you. you you don't have a lot of just the the cavalcade of noise spectacle that he ends up devolving into later in his career. It's it's very um, tight and confined, but mm. he uses it in lots of creative ways. Yeah, maybe confining yeah. Michael Bay is a thing to do actually, because if you allow him to go rushing all over the city, he's just going to create a lot of mess. Uh, rushing all over the world's even worse. Look at all the Transformers films. Exactly. <laughs> So um, when it gets to the big shower shootout, this thing is is almost straight out of Aliens in that you got Michael Bean going up into this room and these are the guys who can handle it and then they get cut to pieces. And again, yeah. I really like the way that Hummel is positioned in this and he's trying to get these guys to stand down. And it's like, you know, you will give that order. I will not give that order. It's like a real tension and rising. It's like, this is going to go bad. And then eventually it explodes yeah. in a way where, and that makes you realize, wow, these mercenaries are just, they just want to kill someone. They're just itching to do it. And this scene also has my favorite line in the whole film, possibly my favorite line in a Michael Bay film ever, which is all enemies, sir, foreign and, and domestic. domestic. Yeah, that's taken on a bit more import yeah. over the past half year or so. Exactly, yeah. And it's a good thing that's your favorite film in a movie ever because it's in every movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, Foreign, sir. Yeah. And domestic. My, I, I like this scene, but there are two like major bugaboos that okay. I have about it. Give us the bugaboos. The first one is that I just don't see Anderson, uh, Michael Bean's character, as not following through on giving that order because, quite frankly, he gains nothing from being cut down while uh, Hummel is pulling the we I have the high ground Anakin <laughs> he gains nothing by that and if they stand down now he has a chance of maybe doing something later and as a commander and as a navy seal he probably should have been able to do that math pretty easily the other thing is that he refers to the navy seals as marines and those are not the same thing. And they do this later also where, considering Michael Bay is such a military fanboy, you would think he would get this right. But they do this later when they refer to the Marines as soldiers. So Navy has Marines. The Marines has soldiers. So I guess the Army has airmen. The Air Force has sailors. That's what's left. Got it. Like they the, sail the, the, the friendly skies. <laughs> Yes. No, it, it, no wait, the unfriendly I ones. admit, I, I know it's a nitpick, but it's just such a weird nitpick for a guy who is known for being such a military fanboy. Yeah, they would have had military consultants as well. So ultimately, I, I can almost guarantee that one of the consultants sat there on premiere night and was like, oh, God damn it. They just called them soldiers. <laughs> Why wasn't I there for that day? Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised that one of the extras on the disc um, that I watched today is... 
there's a couple of guys whose job was to make sure that everybody who handled weapons in the film... Did so in a realistic way. ...does it realistically and correctly, and they were absolutely ripping the piss out of all the things that people do in movies that they shouldn't do with guns, and they did the whole, you hold it sideways, guess what's going to happen? It'll jam. That's not going to fire, and if it does, your bullet's going to go wild. We hate it when people pull guns out from behind their back because the barrel of the gun, the muzzle goes right across all your, your ribs, vulnerable yeah. organs and yeah. you're just going to end up shooting yourself hmm. and various other things. So he clearly did have people around to say, no, 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 don't do it like that. And then was, there were going to be times when Michael Bay was like, well, I'm going to fucking do it like that because I, I have style. Was this the beginning of the we don't need no experts movement? Yeah. To the credit of this scene, it is very functional for the movie for three reasons. It directly and dramatically pits representatives of the American armed forces against each other, resulting in a bloodbath and showing how nonsensical this is. It heightens the tension because Stanley becomes scared shitless and it's just him and Mason at that point. And if the seals had all been captured, and put bloodlessly into a bunch of cells to become more hostages. It feels like they gave up too easily, and it makes the mercenaries less mean. If the mercenaries are like, fuck it, we're gonna kill them, then it's okay for Sean Connery to run around snapping necks. Also, it illustrates how completely distraught Hummel is with that particular outcome, and how in denial he is about this situation getting out of his hands. If you have any concern for the lives of your men, you will order them to safety their weapons and place them on the deck. This is not happening. Sir, we know why you're out here. God knows I agree with you. But like you, I swore to defend this country against all enemies, foreign, sir, and domestic. General, we've spilled the same blood in the same mud. You know goddamn well I can't give that order. We're dead. Your unit is covered from an elevated position, Commander. I'm not gonna ask again. Don't do anything stupid. No one has to die here. Man, following the General, you're under oath as United States Marines. Have you forgotten that? We all have shipmates we remember. Some of them were shit on and pissed on by the Pentagon. But that doesn't give you the right to mutiny! You call it what you want. You're down there, we're up here. You're walking to the wrong goddamn room, Commander! God damn it, Commander, one last time. You tell your men to safety their weapons, drop them on the deck. I cannot give that order! I am not gonna repeat that order! I will not give that order! What the hell is wrong with you, man? Stand fast! Oh my god. Let's waste these fuckers. One last time, you order your men to safety their weapons! <laughs> So then they go sneaking around, and I've, I've got to say, when they're disarming the bombs, there's one bit where Goodspeed's on his own. It's a slightly later bit. He's like, he's got these 
green pearls in his hands. He's just like trying to, trying to lower it down gently. And then those two guys sort of spider down to him and then go, hey, sweetie, and then punch him. And it's like, you, you might want to really wait until those green pearls are definitely somewhere safe before you surprise this guy. Do you mind yeah. not yeah. shooting at your imaginary friend in front of a van full of explosives? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and we, uh, they, they do a lot of sneaking around because basically what happens is Michael Bean and his team of crack seals all get moiderized like in uh, uh, Aliens. Uh, and that basically leaves you with what we said earlier, these two extremes. You've this guy who is very good at what he does, but doesn't particularly want to do what he does. And this guy who is good at one very specific thing, but needs the other guy to help him get there. Mm. So it's a really, really wishes he didn't have to do the thing that he is very specifically good at. Yeah. So in that yeah. right there, that odd couple dynamic and the fact that they can only get through this by relying on each other is a really compelling mechanic. And the fact that you're basically at sort of like the the end of Act Two when mm. when um, Anderson's team dies, it's the perfect sort of like okay escalation. Now we now we're down to these two guys. They still have all the odds stacked against them, and now we have to figure out how to move forward. And this is this is where you get to see like the the bromance start to happen, which it's so late in the movie, considering like how much movie is before it. But it's still really effective. They have some very genuine chemistry, especially during this scene, given that they have to do all the, well, I've got the gun. Now he's got the guns. Now I have to tell him the truth. What do you have, a fucking water pistol? Yeah, there's there's so much stuff that, like, there's so much dialogue that they have to do to to get from the team just got wiped out to, okay, now we're going to find some rockets together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Honestly, you talk about the bromance thing, and I'm starting to think that one of the really fundamentally wrong things with the Transformers movies is that Sam did not have a friend mm. that he could have with him all the time and talk to. Yeah. Because bad boys, you've got um, Mike, Mike and, and Marcus. Marcus. Here you've got Stan and Mason. Um, Armageddon, you've got. Bruce Willis and I know he's got like a pack of people around him but there is one or two of them that he is specifically yeah, him and AJ to. are also quite there's, connected there's that but also um, I, I can't think Will who Patton. it is yeah Will Patton thank you I was, I'm sitting here thinking he looks like Chevy Chase but it's not Chevy let's Chase let's not forget Rockhound the child molester <laughs> well yes yeah. we're gonna, <laughs> I was trying to forget that one but yeah. you've, got, you've got that dynamic going on there and even Pearl Harbor you've got I know they're separated for quite mm. a lot of the time but you've got the, the friend dynamic between Ben Affleck Fleck and um, Josh Hartnett. And yet, in Pain and Gain, you got three dudes together. Total nightmare. Ish. Ugh. Get rid of one of them. <laughs> not talking about Preferably that Mark Wahlberg. But Anthony Mackie and The Rock not doing a horrible botched kidnapping plot. I am totally down for that movie. Mm. But who does Sam have? He's got Michaela? He's also got a scumbag friend who like hangs from a tree from a bit at the beginning and then fucks off for the rest but of the exactly, movie. Exactly, he's not present and ultimately Michael Bay does not respect his female characters enough to make Michaela somebody with who Sam can have that kind of dialogue and that kind of relationship. Yeah. All of that all Bumblebee of the... is supposed to be the person in that film and it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah good yeah. point. Good point. Yeah. Um Stanley also kills here for the first time and I really appreciate the fact that it it messes him up. Like he he does it out of desperation to save Mason because he's got to look at the greater good here. He really didn't want to kill anyone when he went onto the island. He was just told all you have to do is disarm rockets, and now he's being uh, made to do this. And it shakes him up. It they don't handle death in a cavalier fashion for this part of the movie. Uh huh. 
Um, and th- <laughs> this is also when uh, Larry Henderson gets uh, pulled to his knees and uh, Hommel effectively blackmails Goodspeed and Mason out. At this stage, I feel like the only re- reason Mason gave himself up is because he knew he was then going to get out of the cell tomorrow. Because I mean, there's no reason you should just if you should just go. Well, I must save Mr. Henderson. This is, I suppose, the the sociopathy which uh, I was accusing you of earlier with the whole like just let poor Mr. Henderson die. Ultimately, they they have to get to these rockets. Mm-hmm. So giving themselves up at that point is um, it's just a way to move it onto the next scene. Yeah. But at the same time, it's it's to separate Mason from Goodspeed and to have him maybe yeah. reckon with uh, um, Hummel. Captain John Patrick Mason, General, sir, of Her Majesty's SAS. Retired, of course. You're a long way from home, Captain. How the hell are you involved in this? Oh, I have a unique knowledge of this prison facility. I was uh, formerly a guest here. Do they bother to tell you who I am, why I'm doing this, or are they just using you like they do everybody else? All I know is you were big in Vietnam. I saw the highlights on television. And you wouldn't have any fucking idea what it means to lead some of the finest men on God's earth into battle and then see their memory betrayed by their own fucking government. I don't quite see how you cherish the memory of the dead by killing another million. And uh, this is not combat. It's an act of lunacy, General Sir. Personally, I think you're a fucking idiot. Tree of Liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. Thomas Jefferson. Patriotism is the virtue of the vicious, according to Oscar Wilde. Thank you for making my point. It's also yes. a reason for the audience's benefit why uh, Henderson needs to be saved, as it were, at this point. It doesn't actually work narratively at all, mm-hmm. but we kind of need to see Hummel not being backed into a corner and killing somebody. Yeah, and we also need to see Mason giving a shit about somebody. Yeah. They even play the uh, the J theme without the flute at that mm. point. It's... Like I said, though, it, it doesn't make sense narratively because as far as everybody else is concerned, lots of people have died here already. The fact that Hubble was not personally responsible for it is yeah. not the point. Hummel also gets seriously challenged at this stage. He, like, he's, he's starting to suspect that they are not going to pay out. The very presence of this SEAL team suggests they were trying not to pay him and he's just going to end up waiting out the clock and he is starting to really like just get tense up inside of a regun what they're going to do and props to David Morse here for being that friend that mm. we just talked about yeah. like because yeah. Hummel has someone who cares about him they get to confront each other and eventually Morse is the one saying we have to stop this and ultimately Hummel needed to decide that way earlier frankly as soon as the SEAL team turned up that should have been Hummel going you know what this ain't gonna work mm. but even if he had decided that at that point fucking floppy hair and the candy man would have been like sir I want my fucking money but the film would have been half an floppy hour floppy hair and the candy man sounds like it could be a mercy beat band <laughs> That's bullshit, sir. They're lying. How about we commit an atrocity on American soil? Then they're sure to give us money. It's like, no, you're crazy. They'll just bomb the island, you fucking moron. It's a thankless task being floppy hair in this movie because you're one of the the, the ugliest characters inside in, in cinema. He's just this sadistic maniac. Indeed. I've seen him before. Was he in The Shawshank Redemption? No, you're thinking of William Sadler, who was the villain in Die Hard 2. 
that has a vaguely similar plot to this. I see where all the overlap goes. And yeah, this is the first point where um, Hummel is starting to get to the point of we bluffed, they called it. We bluffed, they called it. Gonna happen. Mm. But okay, we could talk about Hummel here. Ultimately, him trying to back out of this tells us that he never was going to push that button and that uh, he. Yeah. Also, he wasn't doing it for money for him at all. He was doing it for the principle of this. Uh, and unlike, say, James Woods in My White House Down, where he's doing it because he wanted war, um, this is uh, him. Because he's had to talk to all the wives of all the men who've died under his command. Mm. And clearly they have been... Uh, it's, it's not so much they're told fairy tales about how they died. Just the framing of that could just have been in, in more a case of, why didn't you say your husband died valiantly in battle? Here's a generous insurance package that should keep his kids and you comfortable. But here's the problem, that, and this is his point. With the kind of exercises and the kind of missions that they were doing, they can't do that. Because if they say to the families, your husband, father, brother, wife, whatever, died valiantly, they have to tell them the circumstances. Do they? You can't just leave it at that. Because then you get people asking questions. Really? Yes. What, uh, what, what about making them sign a contract as they go in saying, when you die, we're going to say that you fought valiantly, but your family are not allowed to ask. But ultimately, the, the compensation is the thing that will effectively make up for the fact that the husband died while not at retirement age. Yes, but then there's a record of the fact that they paid an exorbitant amount of money to somebody whose, family was kill uh, whose member of the family was killed in military action Explain to me now why they don't do that for everybody. Hmm. And sooner or later, someone sees the records and somebody starts asking questions. But this is the thing. This is why Hummel's frustrated. Where a lot of this seems to come from for him is a position of powerlessness. The fact that he knows about this slush fund. The fact that he knows about the lies. He knows about how uh, how poorly people are treated. And, you know, there's, there'll be an element of, if this had been me, if that had happened to me, they'd have gone and told these lies to my wife. Yeah. And that, that feeling... That he has that that despite the rank he's ascended to, despite the um, <sighs> the the entirety of his life and military career that he's put into this, he can't change it. Not through normal means, and that's why he feels like he's pushed this ridiculous. It sounds an awful lot like the thing. American government uh, are Vince McMahon, and they uh, treat their wrestlers shittily. Uh, yeah, kind of that. That's not a ridiculous comparison. The model is much the same. Run them ragged until they break. Yeah. And then yeah. tell their families to fuck off. Yeah. It's very endemic of Michael Bay's the soldier is right and heroic and mm. the people who send soldiers out to do things are generally pieces of shit, mm. which, you know, it's it's even in his Transformers movies. But but here, I think the the reason that it works so well to both humanize um, Hummel and also work on Mason and Goodspeed's arc is it's yeah. Hummel's right. The, the U S government, the way it's handling of this is shit. And the president's being a dickhead for saying, yeah, just drop the bombs on Alcatraz. So the fact that Goodspeed ends up lying to the director of the FBI about Mason, mm. getting the microfilm, not as an FBI agent very clearly, but you know, we don't know what he's going to do, 
but he's already deceived the U.S. government once, and so this is very clearly him breaking from their wishes there. Like, that's that's why this film ends up being not tragic the way it very, very easily could be given the stakes that it's set mm. up with Hummel specifically. I see what you mean when you said that Hummel was the good guy at the beginning, because that effectively makes the government at the end, who get hoodwinked, the bad guys, who mm. are Andy Garcia in Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 The person I, who holds I, all Benedict. the money and the house that is supposed to win. Always win, yeah. Mm. Sorry, Debbie. Debbie, I, go. Um, I would argue that I think that FBI guy that he was talking to, not... Paxton? Not the... The one whose voice yes, sounds like this. He's got a push broom yes. mustache. Yes, that guy. Who, like, you think at the beginning is a total dickhead. William Forsyth like, is his name. The further the movie goes on, like, you get the sense that the dude... He's a bit of an asshole, but he's not heartless. And I, I got the strong sense that the way he played that moment with Goodspeed, he knew Goodspeed was lying. And he was just going to let it go. Yeah, that's what I got too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like vaporized, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then Warmack's the one going, but vaporized? A body can vaporize? Paxton says, poor bastard, in a kind of like, I was always kind of on John's side as well. Mm. Floppy hair, by the way, is cool. His, his name is Gregory Sporlader. And uh, he's uh, he looks a little bit like uh, Viggo Mortensen's less gorgeous brother. What a backhanded thing to say. I mean, he's, like I said, he has a thankless task in this movie because he has to be a psychopath who's standing right beside a man of, you know, Lieutenant General Hummel is a man of honor. That that whole, like, we're not supposed to ever really lose faith in Hummel. But yeah, he's got a horrible job. But one of the things that I find frustrating about the, the, uh, the tone of what Bay pushes with the soldiers are great and they're the salt of the earth and the um the people who are in charge of the military the you know the government who are making the decisions they're the assholes right okay with that hmm, i don't i don't want this to sound like i'm in favor of military action under any circumstances however if those decisions weren't being made by somebody what are those soldiers then going to do Go home yeah. and be unemployed. Yeah. If you're going to have a military, you need competent people in charge. And, or and at failing that, you need somebody in charge. However, the, the, the military get a trillion dollars per year or thereabouts, and they just buy new hardware with it mm. and then sell, sell the old hardware to the yeah. cops right? the or other soldiers. countries. It, it's, and it's, they underpay yeah. the soldiers and don't compensate the family with all of this money they have. It's, it's a shitty, shitty yeah. system. It absolutely is a shitty, shitty system. But what I mean is it's not so much the soldiers good, guys at the top bad Officers. thing that I have the issue with. It's the fact that you can't say soldiers good. You've, you've the, the criticism either has to be of the military machine in general. You can't divide it up into pieces because you can't have one without the other. Hmm. I don't want to psychoanalyze Michael Bay. There's <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I. much to unpack. <laughs> but his most recent film, Six Underground, is literally about a bunch of ex-military people who find a rich guy to give them money so that they can go off and do their own ops without actual oversight. I don't want to psychoanalyze Michael Bay, but... That's a yikes from me there, Brendan. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. So so this is the conclusion then to that particular line of argument that he's been peddling all this time. Apparently. Okay. Uh... 
Is Six Look, Underground I'm not, good? I'm not here to tell you what he's thinking. I'm just saying that's what the movie's about. Right. And they they look good doing their um, illegal paramilitary activities. They look real good doing it. Okay, Ryan so Gosling it's paid and gain with the military budget then. Yes, yeah. very much. Okay, um, so the president we mentioned when we did uh, did our uh, show on this film last year is the same president as in Armageddon. And as We Hate Movies put it out, that's a hell of an administration. <laughs> like, when, when you look back on your career and you go, oh, that, that whole situation with, uh, with Alcatraz, that was the highlight of my career. The whole meteorite going to kill the world, that was, uh, that was more problematic. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's also in deleted scenes in Bad Boys 2, because like, he's oh, in the trailer talking about, we don't negotiate with terrorists, sorry about your sister, Martin Lawrence. My goodness! Yeah, so right. Michael Bay's just intent on getting this one president to just deal with every bad situation that his action heroes have. Worst yeah. eight years ever, jeez. Mm. And yet, when we did yeah. Transformers, the first time we see a president, it's uh, kind of a, a, a Mickey take of George Bush too. We only see some socks. He's like got his feet up on the table, going, "Hey, uh, how's about you get me some uh, ho hos there or something along those lines?" We don't yeah. see his face because of his feet. But, uh, yeah, uh, www.presidentialfeet.com. <laughs> okay. Quentin Tarantino's favorite political Oh, my God. Oh. oh, the president's feet is missing. Right. <laughs> so then there's this Mexican standoff, which, again, feels very Quentin Tarantino. Like, I, I remember when uh, we were sat in the um, uh, cinema and I was, like, 15 watching it. We, uh, as soon as that happened and everyone was pointing guns at each other, I was like, Reservoir Dogs! Because it's like, there had never been a film with a Mexican standoff in it before Quentin Tarantino brought it to the world. And I think Paul hit me yeah. in the arm. <laughs> and he was right to do so. I was being a dickhead. So... But yeah, it's this is a frustrating scene because effectively the two good guys, uh, Hummel and his mate David Morse, uh, are pretty much standing right in front of Candyman and Floppy Hair, and they get shot to pieces and they don't land a single kill. It's amazing. A poor Bakim Woodbine is it gets taken out, but that's it. it it's it, uh, it's kind of sad the way that you would think uh, too much time. Oh, it's a behind a desk. Because keep in mind, as a general, you don't spend most of your time in the field. You spend most of your time behind a desk, yeah. like Stanley. Yeah. But, I mean, it, it's it's good because then we get, like, Hummel's last breath as Stanley drags him into another room with Mason is, what have I done? This whole, like, this was a really bad idea. And as soon as these guys turned out to be psychopaths, I should have ended it there. But um, I like that they also end with him getting pulled away, so that he's at least he he might he's never going to find out how things went down, but he's at least in a position of like, oh, okay, I got pulled out of things. There there are people who might be able to help stop this yeah. who are still alive. Yeah. You know, maybe this isn't going to go completely to shit. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it, it it gives us that little. The, uh, the fact that it was Ed Harris playing him really makes this character because he just he commits to this uh, the, the the premise that this guy could really feel this and um, I mean it's, it's I'm describing acting but there's an intensity <laughs> yeah. to Ed Harris he does the same in um, uh, later sections of uh, uh, the Abyss as well where where he's um, he just, like, gets really intense about things. There's a casualty to a lot of his performances, Bud, in that. But um, it, it, he was sort of harnessing a little bit of Hummel in there. Well, whenever whenever he shouts, that that's some Hummel there. 
Uh, yeah. But he's, he's absolutely an asset to this film to, to really power it through. Because if you've got someone who's annoying or someone who's just like, you clearly aren't someone who understands reality. Like, it almost feels like, as you said, Sharon, he's frustrated rather than not understanding. Mm. He's like, the, the, the way things are should not be the way things are. Yeah. It's also more that shorthand we've been talking about because this is Ed Harris from the freaking The Right Stuff. Yeah. And yeah. so casting him in this isn't quite like casting Robert Redford in The Winter Soldier, but it's not a million miles away either. Nice. Yeah, so he's kind of a flip around on that. Um, and th- then they they go for the last bunch of rockets and Connery starts fucking snapping necks at this point. It's just like yeah. every single one Straight of them. It's a different sound. Yeah. It's, okay, this has been going on for too long now. We need to rush through to the conclusion. Mm. Um, uh, John, come here and break some people's necks. And there's a lot of, like, the guitar stuff in this reminded me of Mortal Kombat, the movie. That it's It's... It's Zimmer because he tends to get out the electric Somebody's guitar. Somebody's murdering sometimes. a wah-wah pedal. It's it's fart rock practically. <laughs> <laughs> um, and when Goodspeed gets just one green thing, uh, one of those golf balls, and just puts it in his pocket, we're like what the fuck are you doing? The moment you get punched, and then when he starts wrestling with floppy hair on the floor, you're like, how has this thing not broken in his pocket? Mm. I'm guessing yeah, I, that he's. I, he's I, when he put the rest of them in the thing in the drain, I'm like, hmm. why not put the spare one in there too? What is wrong with you, Stan? Well, I, part of me was like, if I get strangled by an asshole guess what's happening mm. but it is really like that's a high risk place to put it I did think initially that it was kind of it's safer in my pocket than it is on the floor where someone could step in it but you're absolutely right Carol. he manages to safely contain everything else safest place for it is actually in his closed fist as long as he doesn't hit his fist against anything because he gets flung all over the place for this next fight yeah but I mean it doesn't matter because he gets it's like I'm gonna choke my million out of you says floppy hair and oh, we've completely That's forgotten the fucking works, though. We, we've forgotten yeah. the rocket man we've tried <laughs> Uh, so effectively, that means Stanley takes out these two psychopaths himself. Mason mops up, but it would have been really easy to have Mason take out one of them and Stanley take out the other. But uh, yeah, I mean, he, he basically kind of like, he punks Tony Todd with, "Oh, do you like the Elton John song Rocket Man?" And there's that wonderful shot where <laughs> Candyman's throwing the knife from hand to hand. Well, we're, we're seeing him from down the very bottom of a rocket pointed right at his chest. Yeah. And it's just this kind of, oh, it's, it's the way that Johnny Tapia, or whatever his name is in Bad Boys 2, gets shot to pieces and he's standing right in front of a minefield and it's like, please fall backwards into that minefield. <laughs> oh, he did. Yeah. Boom. And it's like, fantastic. Thank you. But the, the it's a satisfying death. The Rocket Man line, and I will put this in the same category as... The, I don't like soft as shit. The, um, the glass or plastic yes. line, when he's, like, the guy's got him down on the ground. He's like, yeah, glass, I'm a glass jar or a plastic bag. Yeah. Part of my brain's going, Stan... You're freaking out here. Why are you trying to come up with snappy one-liners? It's, he's not. He knows music and he knows chemical uh, weapon special stuff. Like he's really just he's like trying, trying to, to go to what he knows. Calm himself down. It, it, it is not with a dry cool wit like that. I could be an action hero. Ex 
Ept. Except it is. Uh, no, the one time that he gets to basically do a kiss-off line, a surf's up, is after he launches Tony Todd into space. And it's like, well, that would have been a great death, as it is, just impaled on a rocket. But then Tony Todd sails down and impales himself on a rusty fence post. Oh, God. It's savage. And then he yells, how do you like how that shit works? It's that... That's the kiss-off line. But he's yeah. So poor oh, Tony Todd yeah. was in there to die twi- twice. Twice. I mean, but he does it so well both times. Well. And he's a truly detestable character. Mm. Yes, he is. Yeah. <laughs> and I gotta he's admit, clearly I love, love, love that the role. delivery on, that's you. You're the You're rocket, rocket man. man. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. It's so dumb. Yet it, because it's Nicolas Cage and he mm. is... Oh, hell of a good actor. He sells it. Yeah, it's like he's surprised. Like, hey, I just figured this out. You're the rocket man. This is how I kill you. <laughs> but that also, um, because I don't like soft ass shit. It's it's like, it illustrates that Stanley, with his intelligence, his ability to appreciate the Beatles, even though they might be interpreted as soft ass shit when compared to the Stones by the Rockers, uh, he gets one over on the Candyman, who was. Just gushing with toxic masculinity. Be my leader. Hang on, how many times have I said his name? Oh shit! Come with me. So it's like, yeah, it's that one's important. for Elton. Exactly. I think I think it's very important that Stanley Goodspeed, while he you know kills two people at the end of this movie, he does so with his his like own personal sensibilities, like his wits, his resourcefulness. And then the end, like being willing to take one for the team to to get things done. Like he's he's not turning into John Mason to do to do the action hero thing. He's he's synthesizing to do a different sort of action hero thing. That is very true. He could just have snapped Tony Todd's neck, and you know when he wasn't looking, and uh, that would just have made him have effectively would have meant that Mason had molded him into a neck snapping monster. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, but yeah, the um, a lot of that st- and a lot of that humanizing stuff that was Cage. That was not in the original. It was Nicolas Cage who was like, sense. no, I want him to be a Beatle maniac. I want him to do, you know, basically, I want him to be more of a nerd. Yeah, that would that makes that total would... sense. It did doubly make sense yeah. because uh, of in Ghost Rider, where he's like, well, maybe he walks with a cane. Maybe he drinks martini glasses full of red and yellow jelly beans. Uh, maybe he listens yeah. to the Carpenters. He's like just throwing in extra quirks for his characters so that they're different from everyone else. It's it's a good way of doing things. You remember them, though they are all Nicolas Cage. And uh, that the um, like the, I'm gonna chop my villain out of you. You're gonna die. We've been waiting for the next and final time that this VX gas gets used, and it, 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 like I said, it gets used on the person that we're hoping it gets used on most in the mouth. Do you remember what happened to Baked Potato Guy? That was just when it smashed mm-hmm. near him. This is in the mouth, mm-hmm. and it's made of glass. So, like, as well as the worst That's possible the death. least of his worries You're at this point. also swallowing glass. It's just mm-hmm. yeah. the best slash worst death ever. It is the best in context. That is, as far as deaths go, that is the most deserved death of the entire film. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. He's, I mean, he's the I, guy who was just like, just launch rockets on San Francisco to prove we mean business. He's a and, maniac. And also... He and sadistic. Doesn't, he doesn't even have the, um, the justification of being Tony Todd's big, tough guy. He is effectively Tony Todd's Grover Dill. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I would love to see Michael Bay do like an actual horror movie because he's really good at horror movie deaths. And this is this is 100% like a a horror movie sort of death. He he kind yes. of produced Friday the 13th, the remake, and a whole bunch of other remakes with his Platinum Dunes label, but didn't actually get behind the camera. I, I, I can almost guarantee any of those remakes would have been at least more interesting had Bay actually been filming them. Because exactly. by like, large, it fun. Yeah, I, I don't know if it would be good, but it would be a hell of a thing to see. Yeah. Um, because he has just like a total disregard for the sanctity of human flesh, and it really shows. <laughs> I, Thinking about Ooh, the toxic Michael Bay's Hellraiser. Uh, we have such sights to show you, but they'll be all jiggly, and then like here we go. <laughs> I'm gonna. I, I believe he refers to it as fucking the screen uh, when uh, Michael yeah. Bay does that, which uh, uh, Kermod refers to as fruit caking the screen. But uh, yeah, it's he's just kind of jarring you as an audience and I, I believe it was Lindsay Ellis who pointed this out uh, that effectively because everything is happening at such a level of intensity Bay is trying to uh, assure you and he does this much more in his later movies and a lot less in The Rock because this one moves in stages it goes up it goes down tension gathers it goes up it goes down it, uh, it's not just oh my god look at this this is the most important thing you've ever seen and look over here there's also the most important thing you've ever seen trying to keep your brain at that exhausted level what he's doing mm. there is fucking your ability to prioritise yeah he's git surfing you through a movie yeah basically <laughs> um, Kozik the stench of poverty hangs in the air like an old man's nappy for the kids, it's a depravity supermarket where bad is free and society foots the bill. Not many cars to Nick here, so instead they hijack pedestrians and run them around at terrifying leg speeds. It's called git surfing. All too often, the git is one of their own mothers. But actually thinking about it, there's a couple of lines that Stan comes up with when he's like, you know, aren't you ex experiencing a little bit of like, I'm 16, I'm angry at my father, resentment here. I mean, you know, grow up. He's looking at these macho guys and going, this is no way to behave. And that's the thesis of the movie. I'll take pleasure in gutting you, boy. What's wrong with these people, huh, Mason? Don't you think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of anger flowing around this island? Kind of a pubescent volatility, don't you think? A lot of angst, a lot of um, 16, I'm angry at my father syndrome. I mean, grow up! We're stuck on an island with a bunch of violence for pleasure-seeking psychopathic marines. Shame on them! <clears throat> anyway, I only got one camera and there's two left. Mason? Yes, I'm here. I was just thinking how wonderful it was when the inmates weren't allowed to talk in here. Not allowed to talk? How'd you do it? Uh, nurtured the hope. That there was hope. That one day I'd breathe free air. Perhaps meet my daughter. Modest hopes, but uh, they kept a man alive. You broke out. Let me see if I can get this straight. You went down the incinerator chute, on the mine car, through the tunnels to the power plant, under the steam engine. That was really cool, by the way and into the cistern through the intake pipe, but <clears throat> how, in the name of Zeus's butthole, did you get out of your cell? I only ask because in our current situation, well, it could prove to be useful information. Maybe! 
Trade secrets, my son. Yeah. On accident, I'm sure. Like, I'm sure that this is not, like, the, the things that we're taking away. I'm sure those weren't, like, intentionally put there by Michael Bay specifically. Yeah. But it's nice that it's there. Yeah. Because ultimately, like, he, he ends up sort of a, a triumphant adult on his own terms, stealing that microfilm the way he wants to. But everyone who was that level of juvenile and self-obsessed and I deserve money because of nothing, like, they, they just sort of, they risked their lives doing something wrong. That doesn't mean they deserved the money. They were doing it to get the money. They're not dead. It's not for their family. They're just greedy mercenaries. Uh, but there's also that one line uh, where uh, Stanley's talking to Mason and they're inside uh, jail at this point and then he, you know, he just sort of adds to this, that was really cool by the way, but <clears throat> how in the name of Zeus's butthole did you get out of your cell? It's just, it's such a fun little bit. Uh, just, and the fact that the sort of Mason sort of wearily walks past him, there's a bit of a father-son thing going on there. It's a bit of a Ramirez, Conor McLeod thing. How, you yes. Spanish peacock, did you get out of your cell? <laughs> Yeah, it's not it's not a million miles away from the uh, the Harrison Ford Sean Connery gag where Sean Connery does the thing with the umbrella and the seagulls. It's oh like, yeah, just yeah. like yeah, Sean Connery's just going to do a clever thing with a prop and win because he's Sean Connery. And yeah. That's what he does. Yeah, let my army be the rock. That's it. Birds <laughs> in the sky. Oh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay, so yeah, they're basically at the end. Uh, they launch. They, they throw out in on the thermite plasma, and it almost bakes the entire island. But because Stanley got to do his green smoke thing, it's this. It's this really good, like, kind of gathering tension. And oh my god, is this thing actually going to happen? And like, you kind of know it's not. But the movie does a really good job of selling you that it it might just blow everything up, and maybe Goodspeed will survive, yeah. but everyone else will die, including maybe Mason. You just don't know at this stage. So like the slow motion, green smoke, like falling to his knees after having injected himself in the heart with Chekhov's atropine. <laughs> All right, what were I'm curious? What were the uh, fighter jets planning to do if they did in fact blow up uh, the rock? Were they like? Did they think that it was just going to clear out of their way? Because that was a really sharp pull up at the end. Like the guy was surprised. Like you realize that if you that if they still had to bomb the island. The yeah, you'd have crashed straight into disintegrate. it. You couldn't just fly through it like in Star Fox. Oh, okay. Like, That's... Why were they not already pulling up? And the answer cooler. is it's fucking cool. Yeah, exactly. Yes, and that, that was one of those uh, Michael Bay, I'm doing it my way because it's called style. Not something you'd know nothing about, Mr. Expert. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's just how fighter jet pilots always do it. Like, we always have to do the dramatic pull-up, whether we have to or not. I mean, they could have come in from a lot higher up. But again, you get that great shot, which was uh, uh, one of the uh, an early example of computer um, animation. In the uh, the making of stuff, it's like, computer graphics or CG. And it's like, oh, tell me please about this CG. <laughs> this brand new computer graphics computer. thing you talk of. Those planes weren't real, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, I love also, the shot of them under the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, yeah, that was great. And he, like, when the missile gets launched later, by the way, if you've got a really good sound system, put on the rock because there's a bit when the missile gets launched and it goes over the football game, it swoops from right to left. And I always use this disc to, to put my uh, uh, sound system through the motions and make sure that the surround, the 5.1, was was really good. And now that we've got Dolby Atmos and various other forms of sound, it's going to sound pretty great. 
give you a real sense of space in the room. And then it just it just finishes that ultimately Mason gets quote unquote blown vaporized and blown out to sea. But there's that little bit of reckoning between the two of them and they sort of they end the whole movie on the 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 Irish flute and it's it's got that level of humanity to it. Like, you know, the war is done and we can retire to our uh, you know lives of not fighting people as opposed to let's go and fight more people. You know, it's 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 a refreshing ending that, you know, Stanley's like, I don't like this, like, at all. I don't want to be part of this anymore. And uh, and he gets to have his retreat, as you said. Yeah, between the, the church, the sunset, the car they're in, Stanley Goodspeed leaves the FBI and literally steps into, like, a Norman Rockwell painting. Yeah. Oh. The dog. Yeah, the dog. Yeah, they forget the dog. dog. Why do you bring the dog on his heist? I don't know, but he's got him. He, he is. Michael Bay loves dogs. That's the dog why. Honeymoon. Yeah, <laughs> he's one recast uh, uh, actress away from being in a Raising Arizona. Yeah, and, and that's it. That's that's the rock. It's um. Uh, is there anything else we can say about why it works uh, for Michael Bay in a way that his other films haven't, or specifically about Cage's performance? Because this is while it is the Rage Cage tour, we seem to have talked about Bay more than him. Mm. It, he is understated for Nicolas yeah. Cage here, and that's yeah. one he of hadn't the gone crazy yet. Well, this is well, one no, he already was crazy when he'd done <laughs> Vampire's Kiss, but he held that back really well. Mm. This is why the performance is notable because it is relatively understated, apart from those one or two moments that just. Apart from Zeus's butthole. Apart from Zeus's butthole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, the reason you say that this is Michael Bay's best is again like like this the character stuff you talked about that these are probably mainly because you have Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage who are both excellent excellent actors bringing and making these feel like real people and the fact that yeah you get you know Mason recognizing that it, it, he was wrong certainly but also that also that means that he left his daughter like she grew up without him and he always has to deal with that and the fact that yeah that stanley you know gets to be a man his way mm. and that mason recognizes that um he recognizes that he maybe everything the way he does everything isn't so great and the fact that you know cage that that goodspeed lets him have the moment with his daughter and says oh, we need him, and doesn't, you know, doesn't drag him away in handcuffs and whatnot. And the fact that they build a real relationship that you buy here. Like, you buy that they are, by the end of things, that they are friends, and they actually do care about each other. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, there's there's a really good story here. There's a very solid, not, not particularly complicated, but still a very human story here. Yeah. And Stanley, ultimately, the way that Cage plays him is that he is unendingly kind. Mm -hmm. Even when he's killing people, it's not out of, you know, he takes no pleasure in it and it doesn't show, he doesn't show any sort of satisfaction. Except for Tony Todd. He took particular satisfaction there. Yes, exactly. Other than that, but for the most part, he doesn't like killing people. He doesn't like you know, engaging in these theatrics. He wants to help people. He wants to care about people. And, you know, that's what makes that scene um, with Jade at the beginning feel natural because we've already established, 
even that early that Stanley's first go-to will always be empathy and kindness and trying his best to connect with a person rather than force himself on that person. Hmm. Yeah, I also buy the two of them as a couple. Yeah. Like, they, they, you know, those those bits we get are very evocative. And they, they're very adorable. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and when when she's, like, freaking out, like, like he, he's freaking out, and then she's like, well, well we got to get married or whatever. And he's like, whoa. She's like, Marriage police, just... pull over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. She's like, well, what you just said seven seconds ago. And he's like, hey, a hell of a lot just happened in those seven seconds. <laughs> Which is such a, like, it's such a real line. I can totally see some, like, a real person saying that. And be like, whoa, whoa, pump the brakes. Just give me a minute here. Yeah, and his ordeal in this film kind of prepares him to maybe go off script again later in life without freaking out about it and freezing. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. And as far as Michael Bay goes, the I think the reason that he works so well as an action director here where he's so I don't want to say incompetent, but so misguided later is that he doesn't have a great sense of geography in setting up action set pieces the way that say Spielberg and Cameron and John Woo do, Mm -hmm. but he's clearly pulling from like their influence. Um, You know, the the Mexican standoff is both like very much John Woo, but also Quentin Tarantino. He's got a lot of the slow motion and, and sort of like stuff like stylistic choices. And so while he's not very good at, like, keeping track of where things are, what he does have is a good sense of, like, dramatic framing and positioning. So he understands where it's cool or dramatic for certain characters to be or for where their emotions to be at. And so, like, if you look at the shower sequence, you have characters on three different levels shouting at each other, and it's very chaotic and frenetic but you understand what's happening even though everyone's like positioning isn't very clear. It's like, okay, Hummel's on top. He's got all the power. Anderson's literally stuck in this place. Nick Cage and Sean Connery are down below and are powerless and are just like witnessing this. And so, you know, that's kind of the area, like we said, talking about like confining him a little bit really brings out those talents and uses them well. Whereas when he's got like a $200 million budget and do whatever you want, he's like, Oh, well, I'm just going to press the gas for the next 200 minutes then. That'll work. Well, and <laughs> absolutely. Also, the fact that the thing that I think he forgot is the fact that his previous, you know, he had been directing commercials. Mm. And I think that some of that shows here in that <clears throat> it he picks really, really well the you know, the shots he chooses and keeping things tight. Also, the fact that the thing commercials are for more than anything else, aside from selling a product, is emotional manipulation. Mm. Mm. So he takes his skills at holding your emotions in a particular place for 90 seconds and stretches it out to the best part of three hours. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I suppose thinking about it like that, uh, these three form, this uh, Bad Boys at the beginning and Armageddon form a... A, tr- a 90s trilogy for Bay, by the time he got to the end, he had settled into what he would basically be from now on. Mm, yeah. I, th- yeah, I think Andy, yeah. Brendan's got a really good point about the, the restrictions as well, because 
bad boys maybe not so much although in terms of time frame it's constrained but this is set in a very compact area it's it's on an island it doesn't go outside of that island um the uh an armageddon is focused on a lot of it is focused on an oil rig or a ship or a the goings on on an asteroid. Everything's yeah. like it's in a very small area, and all of the dramatic tension has to be focused within that area. And beyond that, it is just a case of okay, you've got an empty screen, fill it up with whatever CG you want. School of Movies is brought to you by our secret agents on Patreon. So, an enormous Glasgow thank you to our top tier clients Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard. Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Datzler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, James Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow. Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Wasta, Kat Esman, Kevin Vehi, Lorraine Chisholm, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Helisario, Tim Razensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, Valencia Burns, and a special hello this week to one of our favourite listeners, Bridget Bacala. Before we go, where can people find you? And give us one movie that you watched recently that you can recommend in one minute. Start with Brendan. Okay. Um, you can find me at normannerd.blogspot.com where I write long stuff. You can find me uh, at writing at synapse, that's C-I-N-A-P-S-E dot C-O. Um, I also occasionally uh, guest host on the Matinee Heroes podcast. Um, we're doing uh, Indiana Jones pretty soon, as well as, uh, you know, I've been on a few other shows recently there. Um, if you need a recommendation, mm. I would recommend Space Sweepers, which oh, I wrote about. We saw that again Synapse. today. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I wrote about it on Synapse with my buddy, uh, Brendan Foley. He's a, a friend of the show. He was on the Godzilla King of the Monsters podcast, mm -hmm. so we teamed up for that. Um, Space Sweepers, it, it's got a lot of anime in its DNA, a little bit of Cowboy Bebop Outlaw Star, a little bit of Firefly Guardians of the Galaxy in there, uh, Korean sci-fi found family finds a strange girl in a container and has to contend with evil corporations and you know they have to rise to the challenge of being cool people as opposed to just a bunch of losers and that's always a good good time for me uh, one of our films of the year i know it's early but and uh, films are not exactly from this year forthcoming but i feel like it's going to be uh, a challenge to beat this one which is a good place to be with that movie uh okay so caro all right. Uh, my most recent stuff you can actually find on, um, well, by the time this comes out, it'll be on a new website, but ghoulishmedia.com. Uh, that's the new one. And I have been doing week-by-week -week analyses of WandaVision, mm -hmm. and that has been a lot of fun to do. Phenomenal show. Highly recommend. But as far as my other recommendation for movie-wise, I'm going to go with Kung Fu Yoga. Okay. <laughs> Never heard of that one. It, it's a Jackie Chan film. 
it is what if Indiana Jones, but Indian and Hong Kong um, mashup. Okay. And there's a scene with a with him driving with a lion in a car. Just trust me on this one. This is like yeah. what got Sharon cracking up about driving with a rhino in the car. Um, Debbie. <laughs> Um, I would argue a movie that I've that uh, somewhat recently seen is a little movie called I believe it's The Devil's Gate. Mm-hmm. Is that is that yeah, am I Devil's remembering Gate. that right? Okay, um, and little it's a Netflix production and it sells it to you one way and things are not what they seem at the beginning. Um, Sean Ashmore, Milo Ventimiglia. I'm trying to, there's one or two other people. Uh, John Frakes has a, a small part. And it's a really fun little kind of a bottle movie, mostly. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I never heard anybody talking about it, but it's great. It, it is, it was a lot of fun and really it kept playing with my expectations in ways I appreciated. And that is The Rock. We will be back for the second roundhouse kicking leg of the Rage Cage Tour as we take to the skies with Con Air. Bring your boxes and your bunnies and be sure to put one back in the other. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out.
In the sun, it's almost pretty. It's got a lighthouse. It's got a big thing at the back that looks like a monster, but no, it's Alcatraz. Once an island paradise, now a penitentiary. Tonight's show is brought to you by the prisoners of Alcatraz.